A British Air Tours Boeing 737-200 aborted takeoff in Manchester, England. What caused this incident to become deadly? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hello. Hello to our new patron. Sublight. Sublight. Our yeah. Twitter back and forths have been... Fantastic. <laughs> they were pretty hilarious. If you haven't seen them, go check them out. And then uh, thanks to our patron, Bob, who's also been commenting on everything and has been hilarious. I, I think I commented back something today because he was commenting on the height between me and my brother. Oh, yeah. I saw that. I was like, yes, Leo is the shortest, and the shortest is 5'7". We are a fairly tall family. And, yeah, he was saying, like, the tallest person in his family is 5'7". Ours is 5'11". I'm 5'11". So I guess the tallest person in my family is also 5'11". <laughs> Jay's definitely the tallest, and he's 6-something. I don't even know what the something is anymore. Yes. He's tall. He is tall. Quite. You would fit in with Bob's family. I would. <laughs> <laughs> I would be normal height in Bob's family. He <laughs> would be normal height in Bob's family. All right. Um, any other housekeeping? I mean, we probably, by the time you hear this episode, already recorded the listener episode. Yes, that. So, October? Hope you enjoyed Miranda's Rage last month. We are still accepting uh, theme suggestions for October. Yes. We already did spooky stories last year, so... I mean, we could do spooky stories again. If you really want to submit one, or anything, you always can. I don't have any suggestions for that. I wish I did. If you have a, a, a topic suggestion, let us know. Check out the newsletter if you have not done so already. Remember, you can always ask us questions on the listener question tab on the website. Oh, we haven't um, talked about this in a while. I think it's in our outro, though. If you guys haven't already submitted a review on whatever platform you're using to listen, you should do that. Do that. It helps us get more listens so we can do this for longer. Yeah. Yeah. It helps people find us. I know quite a few of our um, patrons, for sure, have found us through like Spotify suggestions. Yeah. Like, if there's not an option for a review, also just like a like or a subscribe to it, it boosts where like it's suggested to other people more often, the more that people like and subscribe to things. And if you haven't already, tell all your friends about us. We're Please. Fun to listen to, I would think, if you're listening to us? Question mark? All my friends listen, because all my friends have been on here. <laughs> that's sad <laughs> kinda <laughs> okay I think that's all the plugs and spiels we have so what are we covering today Nick today we are covering British Air Tours flight 28 Mike which thanks Helen yes thank Helen. you to Helen for recommending this episode yes thank you Helen this was an interesting one and it's going to be a lot a lot this As one, in we're not recording this in one day, because it's a lot. This one was far deeper than anybody ever could have imagined. So thank you for the suggestion, Helen, because this is... A cluster. This is a behemoth of an accident. And if you've never heard of it, there's some reasons why. But also, it's just not very common knowledge, even though if you've ever flown, I guarantee you've seen or had something to do with the, the things effects. that... The effects of this accident. It is... Overreaching. This happened on August 22nd of 1985. This was a Boeing 737-200 with the tail number Golf-Bravo Golf Juliet Lima. 
This flight was from Manchester to Corfu. It was a tourist flight just for vacationers. Yeah, so British Air Tours is actually a division of British Airways. And it's specifically for low-cost vacation flights. Mm. Like Corfu. Yes. Which, if you don't know, is a really pretty island to vacation to in Greece. Yes. The captain for today's flight was Peter Tarrington. He was 39 years old. He had 8,441 hours total. He was a training captain, so he was kind of high up in the company. He had a decent amount of time, but actually the first officer, who was Brian Love, he was 52 years old, so he was older. He also had 12,277 hours, so he had more hours than the captain in this case. But he was still a first officer on the airplane. And the captain had 1,276 hours on the airplane type, while the first officer only had 345. So they had their respective amount of time on the airplane. But the first officer was older and had more time overall. The two flight crew and four cabin crew were at the airport at 5 a.m. that morning to prepare for the departure at 6 a.m. As the captain and first officer were walking to the airplane, the captain performed the walk-around inspection and preparation of the external of the airplane before boarding the plane to join the first officer in doing their onboard pre-flight preparations. The first officer was to be the pilot flying for this leg, and the captain was to be the pilot monitoring. There were 129 passengers and two lap infants, that was specifically called out in the story, thought that was interesting, and two lap infants that boarded the airplane. The flight crew carried out their normal briefings before starting the engines. The first officer started the engines normally, and the captain requested the taxi clearance at 6.08 a.m. So a little behind schedule, but nothing crazy, especially when you're talking about vacationers. When they received their taxi clearance, the captain taxied to the hold short point of runway 24. The cabin crew took their seats, two at the front and two at the rear. The air traffic controller cleared the flight to line up on runway 24. The captain did so, then handed control of the airplane over to the first officer. So, kind of weird because the captain's been controlling the airplane the whole time up to this point, even though the first officer was a pilot flying. But it all kind of makes sense once you start to understand how the 737 was built. Because the 737 only has one what is called a tiller for the front wheel. So it's, it's how you steer the front wheel, right? Yeah, you, both of them can steer the front wheel with the pedals pushing left and right. However, it doesn't have a very great range with the pedals, whereas with the tiller is like a tiny steering wheel on the left side of the captain. It allows the front wheel to have a much greater range of turning radius, basically a much higher degree of turn than they would with the pedals. So I feel the, like I saw this when they did the Tenerife episode. Yes. It was like in the KLM cockpit, the tiny little steering wheel. Yeah, there's a tiny little steering wheel on the side, and they, they use that. So it's known as the tiller, and the captain in this case is the only seat that had the tiller. And Which so I think is really weird. It is kind of weird, and in these days there's one on both sides in pretty much every airplane. But So he had to taxi the airplane onto the runway to line it up because he, he could make the tight the turn. Thing, yeah. He was the only one that could make the tight turn. But then he handed over control to the first officer. So this was pretty normal operation. 6.12 a.m., the flight was cleared for takeoff, and they were informed that the wind was 250 degrees at 7 knots. So pretty light winds. Nothing crazy. It was a nice breeze. And it's pretty right down the runway at the time. The first officer requested takeoff power, and the captain advanced the throttles to takeoff power. A short time later, the captain made the routine call out of 80 knots, and the first officer confirmed. The airplane was accelerating normally. 12 seconds later... While still on the takeoff roll on run on the runway at 126 knots, which by the way V1 was 142 knots, so they were still below V1. A loud thud was heard through the plane, an enormous thud. 
The captain immediately commanded, Stop. That's all he said. As he pulled back the throttles and activated the thrust reversers. He checked that the spoilers had extended normally. The captain believed, in that moment, that they had burst a tire or that they had a bird strike. Pretty reasonable... Yeah, pretty reasonable deduction there. Yeah, that's, those are normal things that happen on the runways. So, The reversers were stowed at 70 knots, but only the right bucket reverser stowed. The left remained open. So the these are the bucket types, so uh, because yeah, this is the... a 737-200, they, uh, they kind of clamshell open there, yeah. like these... The, the, the old-style bucket. Yes, so the bucket was still open on the left side, but closed on the right when he stowed them. The first officer had applied maximum wheel braking, but the captain instructed him to, quote, don't hammer the brakes, don't hammer the brakes, end quote. Because if they had burst a tire... Yeah, he believed that they had burst a tire, so he wanted to make sure that they weren't going to burn the airplane or cause any more tires to burst or anything like that. So the first officer pulsed the brakes instead. Kind of like you would if you didn't have ABS. Yeah, Yeah. anti-lock. I had that on my old car. Ah, yes. I had to... When you were driving on the snow and ice, you had to pulse the brake just to slow down. Yeah, so I wouldn't go, wee all over the place. Yeah, Yeah. yep. That's uh, a good trick to know if you're driving on snow and ice. If you've never driven on snow and ice before, pulse the brakes. But, yes, (laughs) (laughs) pulse the brakes. 45 seconds after the takeoff roll was initiated and 9 seconds after the thud, as the airplane was slowing through 85 knots... The captain informed the air traffic controller that they were aborting takeoff. Simultaneously, the fire warning began sounding in the cockpit, which was indicating that the number one engine was on fire. Thus, the captain informed the air traffic controller at the same time on the same message that they appeared to have an engine fire on the left engine. Huh. It seems we have a fire. Yes. 19 seconds after the thud and after a three-second pause, the air traffic controller did respond, saying, quote, Right, there's a lot of fire. They're on their way now, end quote, <laughs> indicating that the emergency vehicles had been dispatched. They saw the fire before he ever called. Oh. And they already hit the emergency they were like, button. Uh, hey, yeah, um, no, really. <laughs> th- there's a plane there uh, on fire. And it just so happened that it was a nice enough day that the fire trucks were also, like, all the fire and rescue crews were also watching the airplane when it burst into flames. Oh, good. So they were already on their way. <laughs> emergency response in this was actually kind of good this time. Mostly. We'll talk about that. The fire alarm was disabled at the same time that the air traffic control transmission ended. As the airplane was slowing through 50 knots, the captain asked the air traffic controller if they needed to evacuate the passengers. The captain asked that. That was a little confusing to me. The air traffic controller responded, quote, I would do via the starboard side, as the airplane was slowing through 36 knots. So he was saying, yes, I would. And I would do it through the right side of the airplane. Since the left side's on fire? Since the left side's highly on fire. Just, just a thought. Six seconds later, the captain turned the plane onto taxiway Delta and simultaneously made an announcement over the PA system to the passengers to inform the cabin crew to evacuate on the starboard side of the airplane. As the airplane slowed through 14 knots, and almost immediately after he made that announcement, I mean, that fast, the lead cabin crew member opened the cockpit door and asked the captain to repeat his request, confirming if he wanted them to evacuate. And the captain repeated, evacuate in the starboard side. So... He just, the, the, the lead cabin crew member just wanted to make sure he understood. Where are, we are evacuating, right? I would feel like it's a little self-explanatory with a fire. Yes, but also, mind you, all this time, the airplane is still moving. Oh. Eight seconds later. Yeah, not as self-explanatory anymore. <laughs> well, oh. we'll, we'll talk about this, because this is crazier. Eight seconds later, the airplane finally came to a complete stop. 
The captain immediately ordered the first officer to carry out the engine fire checklist for the left engine, which they call it a drill. Yes, if we refer to checklists or drills, they are interchangeable. They are interchangeable. At the time, they called them drills. They, don't, they didn't call them checklists. I try to change it to checklist as much as I can in my analysis, but I also make zero promises. Yeah, I, I, can't, I changed mine to checklist. He also informed the first officer to shut down the right engine, the other engine, so that the passengers could evacuate safely. Yeah. Because they're going to have to evacuate through the right side. And they're still moving? No, at this point, they are stopped. Oh, okay. The non-memory checklist for evacuating the passengers was called for by the captain, which was read from the quick reference handbook by the first officer. This was a non-memory checklist. This was something they didn't have to practice for memory, which just blows my mind, because that seems like the most important one. I also think the Air Disasters episode said it was four pages. Yeah, and that's also freaking insane. How about... Get the passengers off safely. Yeah, that's pretty much... Most checklists have like three bullet points for this now. There it is. checklist. Look at that! It's a tiny little thing in the bottom corner of a page, and it's all of ten steps, but it is an easy ten steps. So this is the reference checklist for the A319, A320 series, which obviously is not the same plane. But just for a reference. But I mean, I can't imagine this would be that much different. different. Step one, notify ATC. Yeah. Uh, set your parking brake. Yep. Uh, set the dome lights to bright. So that they can see. Good, good, good call. Yeah. Yep. Check that the pressure differential is zero. If not zero, make it zero. Yeah, so that they can open the doors. Turn off the engines. Yep. Announce, release your seatbelt and get out. That is what it says. <laughs> That's pretty straightforward to me. Activate the evacuation command. Push the buttons for engine and APU fire. Push the button for illuminated fires, and then open the windows and escape lines as required. Brilliant. So as quick as it took you to read that checklist is probably about as long as it takes them to initiate the entire evacuation and do all of those steps. That's how long it literally takes them to do the whole thing. So the evacuating the people is not the last step on there also, which is very important because that means they did it. They did the very critical things before telling the passengers to evacuate, but it was still a high priority to make sure that happens as soon as possible. And I'll get more into this later, but the checklist for evacuating passengers on this flight, this actual step to evacuate passengers was pretty far down, but it also said, but if there's smoke or fire, get out. Yeah. Like, screw this checklist. Do the thing still, but tell people to get out while you're doing these things. Which along those lines... They were performing that checklist, and before they were able to complete the checklist, the captain noticed that the fuel and fire was spreading forward on the ground on the left side of the airplane, so he immediately opened the first officer's sliding cockpit window and ordered him to evacuate using the drop strap from above the window. The rope? Yep, the rope. The first officer did so, followed closely by the captain, so they got out of the airplane pretty quick. They didn't have time to complete that checklist. They were like, this is getting way too dangerous. We just need to go. Now for what happened in the cabin and beyond during all this time. This is read directly from the report. Passengers in rows 1 through 3 appear to have been initially oblivious of the fire, which issued from the engine after the thud. They were at the very forward part of the airplane. However, most of those seated aft of row 5, in particular those aft of row 14 on the left side, were immediately aware of an intense fire. Nah, really? The flames were seen to cause some cracking and melting of the windows, with some associated smoke in the aft cabin before the aircraft stopped. These effects, with the accompanying radiant heat, caused some passengers to stand up in alarm. They were still moving. 
A male passenger shouted, quote, sit down, stay calm, end quote. Similar calls were then made by other seated mainly on the right side of the aircraft. Many sat down, but some found the pressure to move into the aisle irresistible. That is in the report. I feel like, though, when you see a bunch of fire right next right to Right outside the window? I, at this point, I would understand standing up before they came to a stop. Yeah, I mean, when it looks like that... By the way, I did not originally see that. I was like, where's the plane? And then I looked. Oh, oh, I wasn't looking at the right part of the picture. No, you weren't. It's very on fire. Fire. The lead cabin crew member, having seen this as well, made an announcement to sit down and, quote, remain strapped in, end quote. He immediately got up. So after telling all these people to sit down, he got up while they were still moving and walked back into the cabin where he could see the fire spreading over the leading edge of the wing as they were still moving, but he did not see any smoke or fire in the cabin at the time. Not yet. After the lead cabin crew member confirmed the evacuation in the cockpit that we discussed earlier, just before they came to a stop, he made several calls for evacuation over the PA system to the passengers. After the airplane came to a stop and he finished his announcements, he went to the R1, or the forward right door, to open it and release the evacuation slide. The door unlocked normally and began to swing open, but then became stuck on the slide container lid, which had jammed on the door frame. He was unable to release the door after a short time, and he went over to the L1 door, the forward left door. In front of the engine that's on fire. In front of the engine that's on fire. Popped it open a small amount to inspect outside, confirming that the fire and smoke were not yet of concern at that exit before opening it fully and releasing the slide, which inflated normally. Um, <laughs> yeah. I feel like your judgment's a little off. Yeah, it's actually so, okay in this instance. In this instance, it ended up being not totally bad. Evacuation then began out of that door some 25 seconds after the airplane had come to a stop. So this is already, in today's standards, a little late. And simultaneously with the initiation of the fire retardant foam being dispensed from the first fire truck on the scene. So the first fire truck showed up within 25 seconds and started spraying foam. That's pretty crazy. One of the survivors who is on the Air Disasters episode was like, we opened the door, and then there was foam in our face. I'm like, yeah. yeah pretty much. That should be. They were really just trying to get the fire out. It's like foam or your fire. You're like, you choose one. Yeah, you choose don't, one. You'll also, get... the foam won't do much permanent damage of any. The fire definitely will. I, I would think, so, I don't know if anyone thought this in the moment, but those slides are not comfortable. Not at all. At least the foam's, like, kind of a lubricant. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was a little more comfortable to slide down. Good point. It could be worse. It could be worse. You could be on fire. Normally, in normal circumstances, when evacuating an aircraft via the evacuation slides, that's where the injuries come from, is the slide. Yeah. Itself. Yep. And people trying to take it on the slide. Don't take it on the slide. Yeah, I just don't do that. That's just a bad idea. Anyways, the evacuation from the left forward door was supervised after that by the number four cabin crew member who had who had to help unjam several passengers that had become stuck together while trying to fit between the forward galley bulkheads in order to start the flow of passengers. At one point, one of the flight attendants was being interviewed, and she said that she saw a small boy being jammed up against a wall by passengers, so she pulled his yellow t-shirt and it unbottlenecked the galley. There was that many people in the galley? They all just jammed in there. And I'll talk a lot more about that later, because it is a big issue that's it a is. horrible hazard it is there's well, well and yeah. we're talking the bulkhead so you know when you when you're boarding a plane you go through the galley there's like a small wall and then you're in the cabin that's where people are getting yeah. stuck because yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really narrow right there yes yes and so the kid was just shoved up against the wall of the galley well he's well, like he didn't break anything 
yeah, we'll talk a bit about, I mean, obviously that's an enormous problem, but we'll talk more about how big of a problem. And a lot of other things, because we're not even done here yet with how horrible this is. And it is really terrible. This just gets worse and worse. And there's some... The stories get deeper and deeper the more we go, just so you know. They had a lot of actually pretty detailed stories in this report. So I have a couple of them. All right, back to the lead cabin crew member. Wait, I have a question. Yes. Was there an overwing exit? We'll talk about that. Okay. (laughs) We haven't talked about it yet, but I'm kind of curious. We will get there, I promise. We'll, We'll talk about every door. The lead cabin crew member returned to the R1 door, the forward right door, where he lifted the slide pack lid, clearing the blockage, and allowing the door to swing open freely and the slide to inflate normally. Which, by the way, he inflated both slides with a manual inflation. There's like a separate handle they can pull to inflate it. It's supposed to do it automatically, but he just wanted to make sure, so he pulled them manually. And you can still do that on today's flights. Yep, you can. Well, just in case, like, the slide doesn't inflate for some reason, yeah. just pull it. Know that there is a manual but anyway. Yes. Sorry. Read it's your in, safety card. Yeah, I was like, it's in the yes. safety card. Read your safety card. Okay. Yes. Evacuation from that door began one minute and ten seconds after the airplane came to a stop. So now we've already been there for a while. I would like to say, though, as part of the Air Disasters episode, me debunking stuff that's in those episodes, they made it seem like this happened after a lot of people were already off. No. And that was not the case. No. There were a lot of people still on board. Uh, We'll talk about that in a minute, too. Oh, good. I have the total. seems like a mess. Not as many people were off the plane through the left door as the episode made it seem by the time the right door was open. Yes. Okay. I have the totals for the doors at the end of my bed. Smoke began filling the cabin rapidly from rear to front, reaching the forward galley in no time, and it was quickly becoming more dense and toxic. As the smoke became more and more dangerous to breathe, both cabin crew members at the front of the airplane chose to evacuate via their respective slides. So the number four and the lead. They evacuated left and right. As the aircraft had come to a stop, a passenger in the 10F seat, 10 Foxtrot, attempted to open the right overwing exit by pulling on her wall-mounted armrest. Excuse me? She Why didn't... did she think it just pop off? She, she thought <laughs> it was... It just pops off. I think she just thought it was the handle for the door. I mean, it's hard to say. And these days, they do still mount the armrest to the window, by the way. That exit. Having sat there before, they do still mount that armrest there. Because it juts out and where they would normally have an armrest mounted to the seat so they can't fit it. So they just glue it to the wall, basically. Uh, okay. That's, it's a weird thing. Not on every airplane, just on some. That's a conversation for an entirely separate occasion. More of my point is you don't know how you will react in an emergency. And some people, if they didn't read their safety information cards, might not know how to open it and would pull on their... Correct. So these days, they always ask you, like, are you willing and able to assist? And that kind of gets your attention to think, oh, I might actually oh, have to do that. I need to know how to do this. And maybe I and should that look at my should, safety information yeah, card. Yeah, that should make you think, oh, i got to look at that safety information card and realize how this door works. Just in the event that I might have to I open that. you should do it anyway. Assume they don't know what they're doing. Yes. Because obviously they If didn't. you are a listener of this podcast, just know that safety information card front and back. And assume that whoever's sitting there is inept, because they very well might be, and you can be the person that saves everyone. Yes, and in that case... We do it on literally every flight we're on. I'm like, I'm going to assume these people are stupid, so I can open the exit so I can get out. Yep, and uh, right in line with that, the passenger in 10E, the seat right next to them, stood up and helped open the door by grabbing the handle at the top of the emergency exit door that was marked, quote, emergency pull, end quote. (laughs) So it was marked? 
Yeah, they always are. <laughs> it's a big red handle. So Again, I, I can't be entirely mad because you d- really don't know how you will react in an emergency. Right. But I bet that person read the safety information card. Yes. <laughs> Things do get worse with this exit. The safety how? information cards Several... that don't burn, by the way. They don't? No. But I will talk about why they don't burn. Okay, anyways. she. I'm pretty sure every seat had one. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Things get much worse with this door. How? This window. How? Several times. How? The 48-pound window exit fell into the cabin briefly, trapping the passenger in 10F. Before the passenger in 11F behind her assisted in moving the window to the vacant 11D seat. The passenger in the So pa- the part where you're supposed to throw the door and, out? Yeah. Yep, they didn't do that. Out out of the aircraft. Yeah, they didn't do that. They I will say though, I think today's doors are 35 pounds, not 48 pounds. Yeah, it's changed a little bit. So, I mean, they're lighter now. Yeah, this was but they're quite They're still 35 pounds. This is quite the heavy door to come down on somebody. That's like a toddler. More yeah. than a toddler. More than That's most That's like toddlers. an elementary school kid just falling on you. It is. It's a six-year-old. Yeah. The passengers in row 10, as well as other passengers, then evacuated using the window exit, which began about 45 seconds after the plane had come to a stop. Which was not mentioned in the Air Disasters episode, which drove me nuts. They're like, there's four exits. I'm like, there's six. There's six. So here's where things get rough. Some witnesses they stated... They were already rough? Oh, no, it gets so, it gets so much, much worse. worse. So much worse. How can this get this doesn't. This won't make you mad. This literally gets sad. This gets oh, unbelievably bad. I would like to remind you right now that everyone is alive. Currently. Yes. Does that mean people die? We'll talk about it. Oh. Some... Oh. Here's where things... This is... This is... This isn't... I don't know if this is the worst part, but it kind of is. Some witnesses stated that it appeared as though the R2, the rear right door, was opened and the slide inflated by a cabin crew member at the rear before the airplane had come to a stop, but was then quickly engulfed by the black smoke with nobody evacuating out of that exit at any point in time. So they flat out just didn't use it. Yeah, because there's smoke blowing in. There's smoke blowing in. They, I mean, literally, oh, like, like the, from the back of the aircraft. Yeah, so literally, like the it was the fire trucks that were driving up that kind of witnessed this, and they saw they thought they saw a cabin crew member standing there, and the door was open. The slide was already inflated, but because they were moving, the slide was also dragging, oh. so that made it partially unusable. But they said as the airplane came to a stop, the smoke just immediately engulfed and they couldn't see anybody at that point they couldn't tell if the stewardess was still there or not okay just to check in right we got the forward right door yep yep we got the right overwing exit yep yep we got the left forward front door. forward door yep and that's it so far then that's all that happens that's all they end up so using they only use three because the six. left rear and the Is left behind, overwing right yep yeah the other two went the other two left exits they're uh, definitely were not using unusable those. because of the fire yeah, but they there should be plenty of room to evacuate using three exits. Talk about it. 17 passengers. So here's the number. 17 passengers escaped through the forward left door. Okay. 34 passengers through the forward right door. Okay. 27 through the overwing reg- exit on the right side. There's over 130 passengers total. 130 people on board. So this is definitely not everybody. Oh, no. Including one infant and one child in arms. That was written in the report. A British Airways crew bus arrived on the scene four minutes after the airplane came to a stop, and the crew of a TriStar on board on this bus, they were on their way to an airplane. Okay. And they witnessed this happening. And they were so like, they hey, were we like, should go pick those people we up. We should go help. Yeah. 
and they all attempted to help tend to injuries and move the evacuated passengers away from the airplane and onto the buses, as well as assist an injured fireman, which we'll talk about him in a minute. This is a gigantic mess. It gets worse. Here's a story that I just took straight from the report because I started writing it out and was like, why? This is a short paragraph anyways, but it's also, this is crazy. This little paragraph, it's just enough of a story to like put that human aspect on this. Right. Really heavy. A third foam tender, so this is a third fire truck, basically, Okay. arrived at the site some four to five minutes after the aircraft had stopped, having been retrieved from the paint shop. So it was in the paint shop. It was getting painted. It was getting painted. Yep. They retrieved it from the paint shop so they could use it because they needed it. Okay. On arrival, the driver saw a hand move above a man trapped in the right overwing exit. So there was a man stuck in the doorway of that right overwing exit, and he saw a hand inside the cabin behind that man that was stuck in the overwing's exit. He left his cab, climbed onto the wing, and pulled a young boy clear over the body of the man trapped in the exit. Here's the worst part. This boy, who was the last evacuee to survive the accident, was rescued some five and a half minutes after the aircraft stopped. Yeah, that one's pretty rough. About seven minutes after the airplane came to rest, the rescue crews realized that nobody else would be able to make it out without aid from the rescuers, so firemen with breathing equipment entered the forward right door, but an explosion occurred at that exact moment, blowing one of the firemen out of the door and onto the tarmac. This is our firemen that needed help. That would do it. Yep. The officer in charge quickly ordered that no other attempts be made to go inside the airplane until a reliable source of water was obtained to help extinguish the fires as the fire trucks were beginning to run dry. Wait, water? Don't you have to use foam? They were also using foam, but they were running out of both. Okay. One of the fire trucks was directed to go to the nearest hydrant on the airfield to refill, but they quickly realized that the hydrant, as well as several others, were dry. What? What? After 10 minutes, that fire truck returned empty, but was sent to the hydrant at the fire station. I hate all of this. Yes. The flames engulfed the rear of the fuselage, which eventually collapsed onto the tarmac, and actually it didn't take very long. At 6.21 a.m., the Greater Manchester Council Fire Service, which is basically the actual fire department in Manchester, not the airport, arrived at the North Rendezvous Point at the airport. This is one of those, like, planned, we're going to meet there if an emergency happens. Okay. But after having to wait for an escort, which was waiting at the West Rendezvous Point, that rendezvous car, the escort car, had to be redirected to the North Point and didn't let the rescuers in until 6.26 a.m. So this was 13 minutes after the incident had already happened. So the actual fire department from the city didn't get there until 13 minutes after this all began. Which I have several questions. A, yes. why do you need, why don't you already have access to airport grounds? You are emergency personnel. Yep. B, why the hell do you need an escort? Right. You're in fire trucks. It's not like they think, oh, you stole a fire truck and now we're going to go. You're in a fire truck. Let them on. There's a fire. <laughs> Let yeah. them on so they can put the fire out. I'm pretty yes. sure at our local unnamed airport, you they just have badges. They can scan in and go. There's also at DIA, there's some on the airport grounds, but there's, there's some on the way to the airport. Yes, grounds there are. <laughs> because it's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, they actually have a lot of fire and rescue facilities at DIA because the airport is so massive. Shortly after their arrival, a two-man team with breathing equipment entered the airplane at the forward right door and came across a number of bodies, but eventually found a man alive but unconscious lying in the aisle at the front of the airplane. 
33 minutes after the aircraft came to rest, and they removed him from the airplane, but he would unfortunately pass away some six days later in the hospital. So he was really the actual last person to be pulled out alive, but... But he didn't survive. But the boy that was pulled out of the overwing exit was the last person to... Live, live. Live, live. To actually survive the accident. Did it tell you what he died from? Smoke inhalation. Yeah, I would, I would guess smoke inhalation. Yep. But... Which we will talk a lot about that. So much. So much about that. So the final numbers. 53 passengers and two crew passed away, including that one man who was found and died six six days later. 15 passengers were seriously injured. And 63 passengers and four crew. And then one fireman, obviously, had minor injuries. Considering he fell from the airplane after it shook. Uh, Considering he was blown from the airplane? Basically, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that would do it. So, 55 fatalities is what we're looking at. Yes, 55 fatalities overall. To remind you, when they pulled off of the runway, everyone was alive. The evacuation was a gigantic mess. It seemed no organization whatsoever. Yes, and a lot more than that is a mess here. Oh, good. Okay, this investigation was performed by the... N-T-S. No. What? Oh, we're the in AAIB. Sorry. <laughs> we're in England. I don't know. It's automatic. Was this the AIB? The no, AAIB. This, was the, this was the AAIB? Okay. And they had their cute little, we have the honor to be here. Never mind. It's yep, apparently yep. every report. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, so they had a lot of pressure on them. This incident had a lot of eyes on it, including the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, who herself had gone to visit the site of the accident. In addition to that, the entire world was really uneasy about aviation at the moment. This accident was the fourth major aviation disaster that year. Two months previous, an Air India jet had exploded over the Atlantic. Three weeks before this incident, Delta Airlines Flight 191 crashed at Dallas-Fort Worth in episode 40. Ten days ago, the worst single aircraft accident in history happened with Japan Airlines Flight 123, Refer to episode 96. It's not not a good time. Not a good time for commercial aviation at all. Thanks. August 1985 remains the deadliest month in aviation history, including this accident. The year 1985 in total saw 2,010 people killed, second only to 1972 with 2,373 fatalities. And 1985 has its own dedicated Wikipedia page for aviation accidents. Jeez. That is mind-blowing. I mean, these this is it's an unfortunate reality that used to exist. I mean, yes, a lot of things in aviation were new. But we I still mean, had a lot have, of safety measures. We have so many more flights now. Yes. Yeah. And it's so much safer. They had a lot of pressure to work with right now. Upon examining the wreckage, literally just walking around the airplane, investigators found something suspicious. A hole in the bottom of the wing, piercing the fuel tank. Um... Sound familiar. Yeah, a little bit. And it was determined that the hole existed before the fire. Now, I didn't read into why they determined that. And air disasters, they're like, it was there. I'm like, great, okay. How? <laughs> Do you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to ask a question you may not be able to answer. <laughs> sorry. Of course. <laughs> Do you know if it was there before they, they even taxied the airplane? I get into, give me a second. Okay. We'll talk about that. There was also a hole in the burned up engine specifically in the combustion chamber outer case. And the two seem to be right in line with each other. Oh, so this is a la fatigue here. So whatever caused one caused the other is what they're getting at here. 
Now, to answer your question, someone definitely would have noticed a giant fuel leak while they were yeah, taxiing. Yeah, I'm just saying. Or, like, when they did the walk around, because they do walk arounds, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. they would notice a giant hole in the wing. I'm yeah. just making sure that the pilots weren't, like, la stupid and, like, no, missed it. I wouldn't think so. They but weren't. you did say there was a big boom, so I'm, I'm sure it has to do with the big boom. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. So, the damage had to have happened sometime between the gate and the end of the runway. Lo and behold, some debris was found on the runway. Specifically, investigators found a dome-shaped piece of metal. Investigators knew this was the part in question because it perfectly fit into the hole in the bottom of the wing. Okay, so the boom boom was so whatever the heck the dome thing there's is. There's your projectile. Yep. This part later proved to be the front end of a combustor can. I've never talked about this particular component before, and I had no idea what it was. This is... <laughs> Me neither. This is <laughs> very... This is a little outdated. So, inside of the Pratt & Whitney JT-8D, which is the engine for the 737s and others, there are nine combustor cans that are the component in the engine where the fuel and air mix and, uh, well, um, combust? Yeah. What do you know? Once ignited by a spark. As such, the cans need to be able to withstand very high temperatures. Yeah. Investigators determined that somehow the front end of the can separated from the rest of it and shot out of the engine and into the wing. But not just any part of the wing. If it had hit any part of the skin, the wing wouldn't have just broken and started streaming fuel. In this instance, because the world is a cruel, cruel place, the combustor can fragment ejected at just the right angle to hit an access panel. A maintenance access panel. Which has direct access to fuel. What are the odds? Yeah. Thus exposing the hot combustion section of the engine to a steady flow of fuel. It's a bad time now. Now, really now bad it's time. bad. Really bad time. A metallurgical examination revealed that the primary failure mechanism for the circumferential crack was thermal fatigue failure rather than mechanical fatigue failure. I haven't discussed this before. So when we've discussed fatigue failure in the past, it's been mechanical fatigue, which occurs with cyclic or repeated loading, such as pushing or pulling or some combination thereof, that causes, causes a tiny little atomic level flaw to propagate into a crack, and then the crack propagates until the part isn't strong enough to hold the load and then fails in overload. You can do this with a paperclip if you want to try it for yep. yourself. Bend it back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And eventually it's going to break. Yeah, that's mechanical fatigue. Thermal fatigue is a little bit different. As materials heat and cool, they expand and contract. Well, this cyclic process of expanding and contracting with temperature change is an internal kind of loading, and a crack can form in these circumstances as well. In this case, mechanical fatigue did play a part in the component of failure. Once the combustor can began getting weaker from the thermal fatigue, the loading around the can became uneven, so certain sections, namely the bottom of the can, began carrying more of the structural load until that part became weak. The front dome of the can began to bend outward until it was about 11 degrees from its normal axis. Yikes. And quote, Hot combustion gases started to consume the aft portion of the can and to heat the inner surface of the combustion chamber case, which eventually bulged, split, and ruptured explosively. The instantaneous release of pressure in the combustion section generated high supersonic airflows, which led to the fracture of the dome locating pin and the expulsion of the forward portion of the can. End quote. So it exploded. Yes. The As I would exploded. imagine. Yeah. And... It shot like a bullet out of the engine and into the wing. This sequence of events was very concerning because these engines were widely used across commercial aviation. 
Yes, DC nine seven zero seven seven thirty sevens. I mean, there's this is a common engine. How often do they check the combustion cans on checks? I mean, the engines. Can you wait? Have a second. I'm yeah, sorry. Okay. I'm just checking. okay. Well, I'll answer your question now. So they ans- they check it. I don't know the name of the check, but it's every ten thousand flight hours. Okay. I'll get more into it right now. So investigators delved into the maintenance logs. There you go. During a routine inspection, that's all I got, a year and a half prior, maintenance found fatigue cracks in some of the cans. Let me emphasize, this is normal. Any part will eventually develop fatigue cracks, no matter how strong it is, and Pratt & Whitney specifically said this is normal in the combustor cans, and this isn't concerning, as the cracks usually relieve stress and grow slower as the crack gets longer. That's just what they said. I personally think it's still of concern, but what do I know? A I don't bet. Because mm. the more cracks it has, the less durable it is. What do I know? Whatever. The maintenance manual gave instructions for how to repair such a crack, and there's a multitude of ways to do it, but this particular maintenance crew opted to have them all welded over, including one particularly long one on Can 9, the can in question. Normally in maintenance manuals, the methodology of repair is based on the extent of the damage. Well, in this case, the manual did not give guidelines on the length of the crack that was acceptable for welding, only a limit for width and severe distortion. So maintenance welded over the long crack too. Nothing said they couldn't do it. I think at one point later, Pratt and Whitney said, you can even do it. You can even weld a crack that goes all the way around the can. Yikes. Yikes. Just replace the can. That's what everyone else does. Not British Airways, for whatever reason. These cans are only inspected when the engine is removed for maintenance, because they are not accessible when the engine's still on the wing. I guess that kind of makes sense, though. So, that kind of sucks. Yes. As such, when pilots began reporting slow acceleration in engine one on this aircraft on 11 separate occasions, the maintenance manual did not direct the technicians to look at the cans for damage, but rather to troubleshoot other potential causes. Ultimately, they adjusted the idle speed every so often, which got rid of the issue for a while. When the accident crew went through the technical logs before their flight, the captain noted that the crew from two days prior also noted slow acceleration, but the log also said the problem had been addressed, and the plane flew the day prior without issue. It is also worth noting that this plane, and therefore engine, were so new to British Airways slash Air Tours fleet that none of the engines had had a second inspection before. A second 10,000 hour check. This is significant because any repairs done during the first 10,000-hour inspection of the engine's career had not been checked after flying with those repairs. Does that make sense? Yes. So they didn't have any way of knowing how effective their own maintenance was and just hoped it was fine since that is what the manual said to do. And this subject is kind of disputed. What does the service life of a weld-repaired can look like compared to a not-welded can? Pratt and Whitney had advised multiple times that weld-repaired cans do not have the same fatigue life as new cans or those cans repaired by replacing materials, though they didn't quantify by how much. They're like, it's not as good. Well, how not as good? It's just not as good. I feel like that's just normal common sense. Like, obviously it wouldn't last as long because there's a giant crack in a weld holding it together. But it's not a giant crack necessarily. In this case, it happened to be... But this is also what they used for tiny cracks, because it just gets rid of the crack. Which makes sense. So, like, for tiny cracks, yeah, sure. But, but they also didn't, then... they didn't specify for long cracks. They specified for super wide cracks that you should replace that section of material. 
if this crack was not as long, would this have happened? It's hard to say. That is a hard to say. Yeah. Like, if it didn't exist, or if it was smaller, or would they... So, my other problem is, is, like, fine, like, a couple times they said that there was slow acceleration. Mm -hmm. But when it's consistent up to 11 times, there's definitely something else wrong with it. I will get more into that in a second. Okay. (laughs) I'm like, there's definitely something wrong with the engine. You would think, but I'll get more into that aspect in a little bit. Okay, cool. So, again... Weld repairs aren't as good according to Pratt and Whitney, but we don't know by how much they're not as good. This is because thermal fatigue occurs when microscopic sites link together to form cracks or branchy cracks, as the report put it at one point. Like, is that a technical term? That seems weird. Anyway, I digress. Welding only addresses already formed cracks and does not address the microsites that will eventually become cracks. To address this particular problem, Pratt & Whitney suggests solution heat treating the can, which extends the service life, according to Pratt & Whitney, but an independent study shows that it does not extend the service life. Various other such treatments also became contentious, such that investigators were unable to truly determine how beneficial the weld repairs would be, and it seemed only British Airways was doing this kind of repair. That's so weird. They were like, well, if you're going to do this, you should do this and this. And someone else is like, no, that doesn't actually work. And so investigators are just sitting there like, I don't know. Let's not do it. Can we, yeah. can we just, can we just replace it? I thought it was weird to begin with that they were just welding over the cracks. Yeah. Especially because from, from what I understand about welding, yes, those parts can become stronger, but I don't know if you would remember this. What do we sacrifice when we go for something that's stronger. It becomes more brittle. Good job! I'm so proud of you! It's like I learned stuff, guys. <laughs> uh, Dr. Y asked that in one class, and half the class stared at him blankly. So I'm that's really, really proud sad. of that. That's, that's pretty good. Yeah. When so, it yeah. becomes stronger, you sacrifice... Ductility. Ductility, yeah. So that's part of what happens when welding. So I thought it was kind of weird, but I also haven't done a study on also enveloping thermal effects into that. We're also talking about 1985 when yes. stuff like this was starting to become like, we didn't know, yeah. but now we know. <laughs> and now you know. We started figuring out some of this stuff before now because, before 1985, because they figured out a lot out of a lot of this out for like rockets. Yes. That, that, that got not wrong. shot into space. So the AAIB doesn't fault British Airways in that they did follow the manual for the repair, but also it's hard to say the full extent of the effectiveness of this repair in particular because the other larger part of the can was so badly burned. Oof. So, it was also difficult for the crew to have been too worried about the multiple slow acceleration reports as there had been 60 across the fleet in the last seven months, along with 85 reports of throttles staggering. But they were so spread out and seemingly random that it was never brought to the attention of Pratt & Whitney as a whole, despite the fact that Pratt & Whitney's engineer was that was based at British Airways was aware of the issue. Hmm. So there was a miscommunication somewhere there. It was determined that these numerous reports were caused by the newness of the engine to the flight and maintenance crews and how they didn't know its operating characteristics. And furthermore, the British Airways engineers weren't properly stabilizing the engines during ground runs. All in all, it was easy to not suspect the combustor cans, and the Boeing manual did not include it in the troubleshooting. So, sorry, going back to the can. You're good. Because my... It's relevant. My brain. If they had put 
a doubler, per se, quote-unquote. If they had replaced the material of the can. Right. Over the crack, would it have been better than just welding it shut? Yes. That is why most other operators using these this particular kind of engine were repairing their combustor cans using the material replacement technique and not welding. Okay. I'm not sure why one method was preferred over the other by British Airways. Maybe it was cheaper. Simpler. Yeah. Whip out a torch instead of purchasing material. Real quick, yeah. So, that's all I'm getting into on that subject. Because that's always already been how long, and I'm not even a third into my analysis. So now we know how the fire started. Yes. Why was the damage so bad? Well, there are a couple of theories why the damage was so bad. For one... This engine had a bucket-style thrust reverser. Hey. Ta-da! Which literally changes the direction of the engine exhaust from forward thrust to pushing the plane backward to decelerate it. In doing so, could it have been possible that the buckets aimed the now-flaming exhaust at the fuselage? Oh, wait. Wait. That sucks, right? Wait. It seems like a viable theory, but the damage was more aft of the engine than that. Oh. So now it doesn't make sense. So there goes that theory. The engine had also already been throttled down and was not producing enough thrust for that to be a viable option. I guess that's true, yeah. Well, the damage definitely would need the flames to be pushed toward the fuselage for it to spread as quickly as it did and as horrifyingly as it did. Right. What else would do that? The wind. I was going to say, the truth takes some big wrinkle brain thinking and she's over here like... (laughs) She's over here big wrinkle brain thinking today. (laughs) Isn't my big wrinkle Quad. You might recall that there was a light breeze, as Nick had mentioned. It's about five to seven knots. Let's round it out to six knots, shall we? Great. Well, it turns out that when the crew turned off the runway onto exit Link Delta, they turned right and came to a stop such that the breeze became a crosswind and blew the flames over and below the fuselage in the section between the wing and the tail. If the crew hadn't, had not done so, this might not have been so deadly. If they had just stayed on the runway. If there had not been any wind, this might not have been so deadly. H- uh, but, like, how were they to know? No, they're not supposed to know. That's, uh, da, da, da. Right. Not necessarily. I'm just saying, like, by happenstance, yes. they happened to do it. I, I get it. I get it. It sucks. But, how, I mean, they, they turned off the runway so that they didn't stay on the active runway? Would be yes. my guess. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't going to be active since there's debris on it. Well, yep. yeah, and flames. True. They left behind a lot of flames. They left fuel everywhere. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well. I don't in, know if you can tell in this picture, but there's a trail of fuel behind them. Oh, yeah, yeah, in that original picture, actually, you can see the trail of flames they left on the runway. Oh, that one? Yeah. See see oh, the trail yeah. behind them of flames they yeah, left Yeah, no one's using that runway. No, it was toast. We come to the end of my segment today. That leaves the issue of how many people died. Everyone was alive when they came to a stop. So what happened? You will find out. Dot, dot, dot. Next time. Next time. On the Hard Landings podcast. Which actually is just after this commercial break. We're actually just pausing. Breaking here. <laughs> Breaking break. For you, it'll be a couple couple seconds. For us, it's going to be like three days. If you're a patron, then you're not even going to know there was a break. They'll know, beca- They'll know. Because we're talking about it. But anyways, we're going to go have a few days of our life. And research, because <laughs> it's literally going to take me all of those days to do this. There's, yeah. When I say that was a third of my analysis, I am dead serious. I mean, to oh, be yeah. fair, the little dome ball thing, the, the can, is like pretty important. It is super like, important. Well, super and important. I went, because in the air disasters episode, they were just like, yeah, it shot out and there were fatigue cracks. 
Anyway, here's the rest of the analysis. Also, yeah. I forgot to say, welcome to the Fatigue Podcast. <laughs> yes, that. Because I was like, wait a minute. And we'll talk a lot more about things that changed, obviously, after we're done with the analysis. But like That's going to be the big section because of this Because that is the most critical part of this accident, incident, whatever you want to call it. it. Will... The stuff that changed. The you... stuff that changed. This the next changed. time you get on a plane, you will notice these differences. This has some of the heaviest changes in all of aviation. And we'll talk about also the fact that like these combustor can they, engines they really don't exist anymore. anymore. Yeah. They do, but there's not very many of them left. Maybe because they shoot pieces out of their engine. Then again, well, so no. do modern engines. I mean, the JTAD was one of the most reliable engines that had ever been made. You're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> no, now we just shoot out fan blades. Yeah. Yeah, that's all. And discs. Yeah. They didn't really have problems with the fan blades back then, just combustor cans. <laughs> it's like one or the other. What did they do back then that we don't do now? Oh, right. We use titanium alloys that might have a uh, cold dwell fatigue. Yeah. They also don't have as high of loading. And these are things I know. Oh, that's true. Because our engines spin also, faster. Well, yeah, ours spin faster, and then they're also this big versus huge, massive. I mean, literally, like you could hold the front fan blade of that JT8D. It's probably about this big. Oh, yeah, like, no, like triple seven engines now. Massive, huge, <laughs> gigantic. <laughs> okay, now we're actually gonna take our break. Yep. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we're back. Wow. Several it's, days later. Yeah. It's been yeah. so long, everyone. So... Why did so many people die in what should have been a perfectly survivable event? Well, the first step in determining why they died is how they died. But autopsies take time, so let's table that and come back to it in a second. In the meantime, investigators were given the all-clear to begin investigating the charred-slash-melted remains of the 737. In the cabin, they made an interesting find. Now, when I first read about this event, I definitely got Air Canada Flight 797 vibes. Yeah. And figured there would probably be a flashover, which is what happens when hot gases build up and ignite suddenly, along with everything in its path. Oddly enough, that did not happen here. Sure, there was a lot of fire damage, but it all seemed to be focused on the upper half of the cabin, in part fueled by the contents of the carry-on baggage, such as duty-free spirits and aerosol sprays oh. and therapeutic oxygen. Oh. So, uh... if you ever wonder why those aren't allowed in the uh, cabin... Well, that and... Isn't it dangerous to have that stuff just be pressurized anyway? Yes. Yeah. But also, if there's ever a fire, it makes the fire more fiery. Yes, that was sure. the technical way of putting that. So, seat level and lower was mostly untouched. In fact, one investigator grabbed a safety card from a seat back pocket, wiped off some soot, and it looked good as new! That's distinctly weird. On the one hand, it makes sense because the cabin wasn't an enclosed vessel. There were holes burned in, and the doors were open. But if the passengers weren't affected by burns from a flashover... How did they die? Well, the somewhat obvious answer proved to be the case once the autopsies were performed. All but six of the fatalities were the result of... Smoke inhalation. Good job. Yep. The remaining six did die of burns. But 49 from... But 49 deaths from smoke inhalation seems like a lot given that half the evacuation doors worked. Well, it's hard to say what happened in the cabin without actually having been there. So let's ask the people that were there. Duh. The survivors all told very similar tales in this regard. The smoke was thick and black. 
Well, yes, obviously. It was fed by jet fuel. What else is new? But no, when they say thick, they meant it felt like you could run your fingers through it. Ew. It was tangible, touchable, and one breath of it was absolutely debilitating. One witness described a breath of this smoke as feeling like your lungs were solidifying. In one breath? That's not normal. As part of the autopsy, toxicology reports were conducted, and they found astonishingly high levels of carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide. Yes, these are the normal markers of smoke inhalation, but these were extremely high levels. So what exactly made the smoke so toxic? Investigators began to recreate the conditions of the smoke by burning stuff from inside the cabin. I just imagined this going so well. I feel like it's, it's a bunch of people that get to play with fire. Yes. So it's like, let's blow some up. Yes. This is also the part of the uh, report where I now don on many, many hats. We come to the point of my spiel where I wonder why this had never dawned on anyone before. In burning various components of the cabin, investigators found that a lot of it produced particularly toxic gases when burned. That's Again, I don't, good. I don't know how this never came up before. Don't they have to test it? I don't know. So, let's get into it. The polyvinyl chloride panels, or... Do you know what that is? The short for that? Polyvinyl chloride is PVC, oh. as it's more commonly known. When combusted, is turned into carbon monoxide. Yikes. And freaking hydrochloric acid gas. Oh. That's bad. You're not supposed to inhale that. Let me repeat. They were breathing in hydrochloric acid. Yeah. the You know, the that, like, just melts away everything in his path. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The seat cushions produced more hydrochloric acid, as well as hydrogen cyanide. The wool and the curtains and the carpets also produced hydrogen cyanide. So the, they were getting poisoned. And lastly on my deadly list, there was a polyvinyl fluoride or Tedlar finish on the wall panels. If polyvinyl chloride makes hydrochloric gas, what does polyvinyl fluoride make? Hydrofluoric gas which is an quote-unquote intensely irritant hydrofluoric acidic gas. So acid. And one of the worst acids known to man. Great. So what effect do these gases have when inhaled? This is all straight from the report, either quotes or paraphrasing. Carbon monoxide is absorbed by the blood from the lungs and combines with hemoglobin to form carboxyhemoglobin, inhibiting oxygen absorption and therefore preventing oxygen from getting to your body, including um, the brain. At 10 to 20% concentration, you get a slight headache. 30 to 40%, you get a severe headache, weakness, dizziness, vision, dimness, nausea, vomiting, and collapse. Anything above 50%, you die. Solid. Hydrogen cyanide is directly absorbed into the tissue and affects enzymes such as cytochrome oxidase, which blocks the uptake of oxygen into cells. A concentration of 200 parts per million will cause rapid collapse and death. Hydrochloric acid irritates the throat and respiratory tracts, causing damage to mucous membranes and a pulmonary edema. Oh, and it irritates your eyes, too, as if things weren't worse enough. Hydrofluoric acid is one of the most powerful acids ever and is a protoplasmic poison. There's some words. Its burns cause throbbing pain and destruction of tissues with decalcification and necrosis of bones. That's nice. All these things just sound like really, really, really horrible things. Yes. It's just all just really bad. And this is where I come back to... They didn't test it for fire. What happens when it catches on fire? Apparently not. Because what? This happened in the 80s? I think it was 85, This was 85, yes. Yeah. Okay. So at this point, we knew like fires happen, right? They happen on planes. It happens. No one decided to be like, what happens when we set the seats on fire? Nope. Not at all. Apparently. Though I won't delve into these particular components further, they were also present in the smoke. 
uh, nitric and nitrous acids, sulfuric acid, acrolene, which is one of the most irritating of aldehydes, aromatic hydrocarbons such as benzene, toluene, and styrene, and acetaldehyde, which is another irritant gas. Needless to say, yikes. It's like a death cocktail. Yeah. Yeah. And you're breathing it. Yep. Only 47% of those who had been in the thick smoke and inhaled it significantly survived. Mm. Less than half survived. We'll come back to some of the details on this subject when we get to recommendations, as you might have uh, gathered. Okay, so the smoke was really bad, but everyone should have been able to get out quickly to minimize smoke inhalation, right? In fact, the 737, as well as all aircraft, are certified to have all passengers evacuated in 90 seconds using only half of the emergency exits. The exact conditions of this accident. Right. 90 seconds is the key value because studies have shown that this is the point at which a fire is no longer 100% survivable. For this particular aircraft, Boeing proved that 130 people could be evacuated in 75 seconds, even faster than certification standards. So why didn't they? 90 seconds after coming to a stop on the taxiway, most of the passengers were still on board. Gee, I don't know. What did the accident have that certification conditions don't? Let's start with the litany. Fire? Smoke? Panic? Yeah! And when you get certified, it's like, oh, everyone file out in orderly fashion. This ain't orderly. So the Civil Aviation Authority, or the CAA, which is the UK's equivalent of the FAA, decided to conduct a human factor study. They needed a way to simulate an evacuation under the same conditions. So they filled a plane with volunteers and told them they needed to evacuate. But to spice it up a bit, the first ones off were offered money. Well, that definitely spurred them into action, raising the stakes, pick up the pace, put pep in your step, light a... never mind. Forget that idiom. Anyway, this simulation was filmed and showed to survivors who exclaimed that this is exactly what the accident was like. People were clambering over seats, pushing and shoving to get to the exits. There was also probably some trampling involved. One of the most important things to come from this was a realization of where the literal bottleneck developed. You might recall the story from earlier of the kid who was shoved into the wall and the flight attendant who pulled him out of the jam by his yellow t-shirt. Well, she had to repeatedly pull people out of that space, which was the bulkhead between the cabin and the galley area. You might ask how wide that bulkhead was, racking your brain for the last time you were on a plane, which for a lot of us was a long time ago. <laughs> it's fairly narrow. On this aircraft in particular, it was only 22 and a half inches. Ooh. Yeah. Enough for one person at a time. Sure, when you certify an aircraft and everyone files out in an orderly fashion, you can get everyone out in 90 seconds. You had fire and mass chaos to the mix. Not so much. The study went further to find that increasing the width to 30 inches significantly increased survivability of such an accident. The certification tests also do not test the effects of how long it takes to evacuate if both exits at one end of the cabin, either front or, or back, are not available. So in this instance, neither of the back exits were available. This is how it wasn't that big of an issue that the bulkheads were so narrow when they were certifying it. So what they did is they had all of the exits on one side of the plane, so everyone could access an exit fairly efficiently. But in this incident, if you were in the back of the plane, your nearest exit was the overwing, which is a far ways away rather than just going to the other side of the cabin, of yeah. your aisle, yeah. if right. you will. Now for a quote that will make you mad. The regulatory authorities have stated that such tests are not intended to represent a realistic evacuation. But Why would you say what? <laughs> but are merely regarded as a yardstick test to compare the evacuation potential of one aircraft with another. Why wouldn't they want it to be like an actual End evacuation? Quote. End quote. Well, I have no idea. It's like they're sizing up each other's on... <laughs> I can go faster than you can! Ha! 
But there's, like, no realistic reason for that. That's no. stupid. So despite saying that it's not supposed to be a real evacuation, they still had certain requirements for things like 30% of the passengers must be female, 5% must be over 60, and between 5 and 10% must be under 12 years old. So the investigators were really confused about what the goal of the certification was. So am I. Yeah, that doesn't really make sense to me. Why would you have volunteer requirements if it's not supposed to be an actual... I'm so confused. So let's discuss the evacuation out of the right overwing exit. As Nick mentioned, the passenger in seat 10F tried pulling on the armrest to open the door. This was because there wasn't a checklist for the cabin crew to teach the passengers how to open the overwing exits, so they didn't teach them. And they don't really still... But it's very clear in the emergency things, and it's also just but clearly also, marked. like, if you have warning of an emergency, you can run back there and be like, hey, here's what you do. Right. In case it wasn't clear before, here's how you do it. Also, no- just read your safety information. Yeah, card. so no one did that. The passenger in 10F also couldn't see the instructions, clearly from where she was sitting. But the passenger in 10E could, and was able to assist in opening the door. But because they didn't know how it would open, it fell inward and trapped the passenger in 10F before it was lifted off of her and put in seat 11D. Quote, It would appear beneficial to throw it out of the aperture rather than retain it in the cabin. End quote. So, here's where we get into this rant for the 50th time. When you look at the safety information card in your seat back pocket, you'll see that the instructions are to throw, aka yeet, the door out of the aircraft. As if that wasn't enough, as passengers were clambering over seats to get to the exits, they this folded down seat 10F forward, further inhibiting egress from the overwing exit. Egress was further inhibited when the passenger from seat 16C died in the exit door. Oh yeah. This whole debacle slowed down evacuation from that section of the plane, needless to say. And the last aspect that sh- slowed down the evacuation, the front right door. It turns out that if you open the door too quickly... Yep, that's a thing. The slide inflation mechanism gets caught in the door and jams it. Yeah, Boeing redesigned that. Needless to say. Okay, so that was a lot, and I fully acknowledge that I did leave out some details, but I hit all the big points, so don't come for me, please. Also, if you really want to call us out on skipping something, go read the report yourself. Have fun. There's so much... I mean, so much. The it's we do it so that you guys don't have to, right? And but they're very long and dry sometimes. And I know it's at least rough. a couple of things we're still going to talk about that we haven't spent much time on yet. Yep, one of them I was pretty much like, we'll cover it in the findings. I don't. Yeah. It's too much. And also, real quick, as a reminder, whenever you get onto the plane, not while you're in an emergency, read your safety. When and- you're sitting there waiting to taxi while everyone else is getting in the d- seat. Grab your safety information card, read it. It takes 30 seconds. Maybe. If that, and then there you go. Especially if you're in an exit row. But you should read it anyway. Assume that the people in the exit row are dumb. As we said before, that has been my public service announcement for the 50th time. Also, just so everybody is aware, pushing and shoving doesn't make the situation any better. Nope. Panicking doesn't make it any better. No. The plane's still going to catch on fire. At this point in certification, they pretty much assume that's what's going to happen anyway, which you're not wrong, but you can also facilitate and quicken, expedite the evacuation, if you will, if you don't push and shove. You will get out faster if you don't push and shove. It's like when you're in traffic 
and there's an accident, if you zipper yourself into traffic, it goes faster than yeah. trying to shove your way in super fast and then not blocking up the rest. That's why traffic happens. Like, if when you don't let people into traffic, that's why traffic happens. If it's you don't let like traffic here. in, you're the problem. So it's kind of like here, right? It's also kind of like getting off of a plane in general. You should go row by row down the plane until you get to the last row. It will go faster. It will go faster rather than trying to shove your way forward of everybody to get off the plane. Right. It just doesn't work. And especially in an emergency, it'll make it so much harder for everyone to get off. So first of all, listen to the crew. Yep. The cabin crew, because they will let you know what to do. And then don't panic and find your nearest exit. Yep. Which you should actually already know where it is. Exactly. Yeah. Pretty self-explanatory. Just look before you sit down even. All right. Let's do some findings. How many are there? There were more than I've ever seen in my entire life. There were 106 findings in this report. We're not doing all 106. We're definitely not doing all 106. I'm only doing, well, I'm still doing quite a few, but not 106. That's for sure. So let's just go through these. They found that the first indication to the flight deck crew of fire, the left engine fire warning, occurred nine seconds after the thud at a time of extremely high workload. The commander had no direct means of assessing the extent of the fire and sought advice from air traffic control on the need for passenger evacuation. I thought this was interesting because he did. I thought it was interesting that he asked the air traffic controller, should we evacuate? Not knowing how bad the airplane actually was. And no, ATC is like, no, it's bad. Yeah. Anymore, it's just standard practice to just evacuate anyways. It's better to evacuate and have nothing happen with the with the aircraft than to not and then have a bunch of people die. Better yes. safe than sorry. And this is fair. However, it is assumed that as soon as you make the call to evacuate, you can assume about 30% of your passengers are going to end up injured. Yep, that's also In true. some capacity. Well, yeah, with the with the slides and stuff. Yep, that's as soon as you make that call, you've pretty much made the decision to injure people. So, it it's, it's a, making, even that's just a rough choice. It is a rough choice. They found that the decision to turn the aircraft to the right into Link Delta, given the sequence and timing of the information available to the commander, in particular the initial lack of fire warning, was understandable. So they don't blame him for turning off where he. Yeah, did. he he was he didn't understand he how bad the fire was. Trying to get off the runway. He didn't understand how bad the fire was, and he's like, maybe we can just taxi out of here, not knowing that it was really, really, really bad. They found that turning the aircraft to the right had a critical effect on the fire, placing it upwind of the fuselage. So that's not good. Nope. They found that the passenger evacuation land drill, the checklist, was inappropriate for such an emergency and has since been modified. However, the evacuation was not delayed as a result because they just started evacuating They just anyway. started going. They were like, nah. We, but in, we like, in this instance, it was fine, but, but in actuality, it's a the, really bad checklist. The checklist is horrible. The evacuation doesn't come until step 14, you said? Yeah. Holy crap. It should be like step three. Like, yeah, get everybody <laughs> off the airplane and it should then be. do everything. Cut off the fuel. Stop the engine. Depressurize the airplane. GTFO. Oh, and evacuate. GTFO. That should be it. And most checklists is like four or five, but it still doesn't take very long to get there. GTFO. Yeah. They found that on failure of the left engine, the public address volume automatically switched to the lower level. This was a weird one, but the, the PA system actually dropped to a low level of volume when the left engine shut down. Yeah, that's, that's not great. Weird. Nope. I think it's because they lost some electrical power. Yeah, that would make sense. From the but that made it harder to hear what was going on. Nah, really? Yeah. You know with the screaming and the panic going on? Yeah. How that. how could you not hear it? Right. Come on. Right. We're not sarcastic at all. <laughs> not at all. 
They found that the motion of the right forward door as it was rapidly opened by the purser exposed a design fault associated with the slide box lid release lanyard, causing the door to jam in the aperture. All of that to say the door jammed because he opened it too quickly due to a design flaw. And that's true. And that was a problem. That and Boeing fixed. Boeing fixed it. Thank Obviously. Goodness. Yeah. It was one of those like, really? yeah, we messed up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll fix it. Thankfully, he still got it open, but. Eventually. Yes. It took time. It did. They found that some of the emergency equipment for use by the cabin crew, including two loud hailers, was in overhead bins in the passenger cabin, not at the cabin crew stations. In an emergency evacuation, the cabin crew may find it impossible to reach this equipment as passengers move toward the exits. Nah. This is very true. Yeah. They're coming this way. How are right. you going to get that way? Right. To get what you need. It Which... should be with them. Well, and now in a lot of aircraft, there are flight attendants in the middle of the cabin. That's where they sit. There are, yeah, and in quite a wide few. Wide bodies and stuff. Yeah, mm -hmm. wide bodies and then some, uh, like the A321. But that still, they should still have the equipment yes, at their absolutely. stations. Which we'll get into that in a minute. But that also means that if you're near one of the life rafts that's stored overhead or in an overhead compartment, get out of the way for the flight, for the cabin crew to get to it, please. Yep. That's yep. why you should read your safety information card. You should also know where those things are in case the cabin crew's incapacitated. Yes. We'll get to more of that in a bit when we cover the other really important thing about their crew station. We'll get to that. They found that, So now we're talking about the engine and the whole failure of the engine. They found that multiple embryonic thermal fatigue origins would not be detectable by normal inspection techniques employed during an overhaul and repair. So this is those micro fatigue crack yeah. that weren't really even cracks yet. They were just weaknesses and they would eventually come together to form a crack. No, if they're not a crack yet, they're not detectable. Right. We, and we've talked about that before. Yeah. It's microscopic. Yeah. It's super duper 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 tiny. Yep. The only way it would be detectable is once it's already a crack and they right. fixed the ones that were already cracks. Yeah. Yep. Along those lines. They found that the repair carried out in 1983 used the direct fusion weld method described in the British Airways engine overhaul manual. They welded it. Solution heat treatment and optional post-weld stress relief, which formed part of the repair procedure in the Pratt & Whitney engine manual at the time, were not carried out. So they did the simple weld. They did not do the full treatment. The full treatment that's recommended by the engine manufacturer for this repair. However, I believe they also said that this was not a factor in the cause of the cracking. Ultimately, no. Correct. I skip a lot of points here because it gets into way too much detail. Moving on, they found that the manufacturer had advised operators that direct fusion weld repair cans have lower fatigue lives than ones repaired using material replacement techniques, but had not quantified this reduction. British Airways interpreted this as applicable to cans with a much greater time in service than any they operated at the time. So they figured their airplanes were just so low in time that this wasn't going to affect them. They're so new. These changes that they were, the manufacturer was recommending for repairs, they figured that the repairs they were doing were probably enough. But they, they were wrong. Um, to put in perspective, these the can has a 10,000 flight hour life. Yep. It made it to 46% of that. Yeah. That's not good. Well, and we just don't use those kind of engines anymore. So it's not even a so problem. So it's not relevant. They found that after the accident of Gulf Bravo Golf Juliet Lima, the CAA and FAA issued mandatory directives requiring operators to perform inspections on their JT-8D engines at intervals designed to detect circumferent... 
circumferential <laughs> combustor can cracking at an early stage before it could develop into a full 360 degree separation. Changing the inspection interval. Yes. That's really all that means. Inspect more often. And this affects everything with the JT-8D. So this isn't just like talking about the 737. This is talking about everything with the JT-8D, which is a lot of airplanes. What was it? DC-8, 707. Not the DC-8, but the 707, the DC-9, the 727. I think I said DC-8 earlier. DC-9. Yeah. There was only really one type of 707 that actually ran the JT-8D, but still. Okay. Moving on. They found that the operation of the engine fire extinguisher system had no significant effect on the fire and could not have been expected to do so. Why? Because the fire was really on the outside of the engine. Yeah, it wasn't not yeah. internal. And it was being fed constantly by fuel. Right. And the fire was mainly on the ground, really, at this point. All right, moving on to some fire aspects here. Fire! You mean we haven't done that already? Yeah, well. They found that the aft right door aperture allowed the early entry of smoke and possibly some flame transients, but was not the principal point of entry of the fire into the cabin. So talking about that flight attendant that opened the rear right door that was seen before they came to a stop. Who also later died. Yes, they believe that some of the smoke may have come in that way and some of the flames, but actually that's not really the point here. The next one's a little more important. They found that the wind was the principal factor controlling the fire's behavior. It carried the external pooled fuel fire against and beneath the rear fuselage, giving rise to rapid fire penetration. Subsequently, the wind-induced aerodynamic pressure field around the fuselage drew fire products into the hull, through the cabin interior, and out through the open exits on the right side of the fuselage. So the open door actually carried it the opposite direction from the left side of the fuselage through and out the door. And one thing that investigators made abundantly clear was, so there's two different stages of this fire. There's the dynamic stage where they were actively moving the aircraft, and then there was the static stage where they were stopped on the taxiway. Right. They specifically said that the dynamic stage of the fire was not the most damaging aspect of the fire. It It was was the the static static stage. When it was sitting still. Just to make that abundantly clear. Which I skipped over a bit of that, but it does come up here. They found that the initial fire penetration of the fuselage occurred within 20 seconds of the aircraft stopping. The fuselage was literally compromised by fire within 20 seconds of the airplane coming to stop. Which is insane. When the lower skin panels on the left side adjacent to the the aft cargo door their cargo hold were burnt through followed shortly afterwards by penetration of the fiberglass acoustic insulation blanket. The acoustic insulation blanket was fiberglass and caught on fire. This gave the fire access to a cavity surrounding the cargo hold from which it entered the aft cabin via floor-level air conditioning grills located on each side of the aircraft. Yeah, I didn't talk about any of this. The fire literally came through the vents in the fuselage. Um, Well, I mean, that's where oxygen was. Yep, correct. That sounds like a horror movie. So along those lines, all of those things I just said, they found it is estimated that within one minute of the aircraft stopping, the fire penetrated the cabin sidewalls just above floor level adjacent to seats 17A and 19A, giving the fire direct access to the cabin interior. Literally, it burned right through the wall of the cabin at between seats 17A and 19A. It's also pretty incredible that they were able to make this timetable. Yeah, it is. Especially considering the airplane fell apart. And was, yeah, completely and utterly Melted. damaged. Yeah. So they... But it's crazy that that happened within a minute. Yeah. That just proves that this airplane was pretty much a fire hazard. It just wanted to be on fire, which is bad. Well, and the exterior had some fire-resistant components. A small amount. But then the interior was just a fire propellant. They found that approximately 50% of the seats suffered little or no fire damage, and many plastic safety instruction cards 
magazines, and other fragile items survived undamaged in the seat back pockets and on seat cushions. In contrast, all ceiling panels and overhead lockers were destroyed, and all sideliner panels above cushion level were extensively damaged by fire. That was because of the aerosols and stuff. Yeah. That and just the materials they were made out of. The entire roof of the cabin and all of the the bins and all of the sidewalls just burned. Which are all made of PVC. Yep. Which is bad. They all burned. And created super toxic gas. They found that several areas of very intense damage were caused by the combustion of flammable materials, possibly alcohol or aerosol sprays, or by the release of therapeutic oxygen. Which are portable oxygen tanks. And not only did they suspect this, they did some numbers. Ooh. They found of 27 aerosol sprays recovered from the cabin, 15 had ruptured as a result of thermal overpressure, and three of these had been propelled at high speed into seats, frames, or other obstructions. So they're uh, projectiles. These were definitely banned. The practice of routinely permitting the carriage in hand baggage of aerosol cans containing butane or other flammable gases represents an unnecessary risk in the event of a cabin fire. So you will note, if you ever try to bring an aerosol through security, yeah. they will take it away. This is when that stopped. Like it wasn't doesn't have anything to even do with the whole everything changed in 9-11. Everything changed then, 1985. That was, that stopped. Also, stuff like that, when it's pressurized, Does overly not do pressurized, well. yeah, can also explode. Yes. So it's not just that it can catch on fire and explode. It can just explode, explode from pressure. Yes. So. Also, yeah. I don't know where this, like, what, what the demographic was on this air tour or why, but there were 10 therapeutic oxygen cylinders. That seemed a little strange to me. That doesn't seem like a normal amount. That seems like an abnormal number of people with... Oxygen, oxygen problems from what i understand in life experience and reading books and stuff corfu is a very desirable place for retirees and that's what i figured that's kind of what i'm getting at is that this was probably an older demographic in general because the next finding is they found that nine of ten therapeutic oxygen cil- cylinders carried in the overhead lockers had discharged their contents into the fire needless to say that's Fuel. a fire hazard It is considered that the practice of storing therapeutic oxygen cylinders in the overhead lockers, which is what they just did, is undesirable in view of the high temperatures experienced by ceiling lockers at any early stage in a fire. What are the rules about that now? uh, You're generally, well, for one, they have to have a pressure release, but actually, two, you're not usually supposed to have an actual oxygen tank. You're supposed to have one of those little things that converts. Oh, that makes sense. And pressurizes for you, because those things are much safer, and they're FAA approved. There's a lot of... New rules around these things. That make a descent. Yep. Make a descent. Make a descent. And the attendant risk of thermal discharge occurring whilst passengers are still evacuating or when rescue personnel are inside the cabin, i.e. a little explosions happening while firemen are trying to save people. Yeah, that's terrible. Yep. They found that the accident has highlighted a general ignorance of the importance of light winds within the aviation community at large. Operational procedures in widespread use at the time of the accident made little or no allowance of practical value for such winds and provided minimal guidance to aircrew. We'll talk more about this in the recommendations because they highlight this again. They found that despite the early containment of the external fire, fire penetration of the rear fuselage led to an internal fire which the Manchester International Airport Fire Service were not equipped effectively to deal with, nor were they required to be so equipped. They weren't equipped to deal with fire inside of airplanes. That's kind of weird to me. Yeah. They were entirely equipped to deal with it outside. That has since changed. Yeah, I would hope so. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) That seems like a big giant hole in firefighting to me. Yes. 
when you're talking on about airport grounds. Yes, you're talking about the place where all the people are that you're trying to save being on fire, and you can't deal with anything where the people are. They found that the absence of an escort vehicle had arisen because of recent changes in emergency procedures, which had been agreed between the Manchester International Airport Fire Service and the Greater Manchester Council, but which the airport police had not been a party to, and of which they were not aware. This is so dumb. This is really... This was awful. Because the this was talking about literally, like, the city's fire services coming to help with the rescue operation, not being able to get on the airport because their police escort from the airport police... They weren't at the right gate because they weren't there for the meeting where they told everybody that we're changing which gate to meet at. This is so dumb. Why do you need an escort? You're an emergency vehicle. I agree. Helping with an emergency. I agree. They found that a further short delay in bringing the Greater Manchester Council firefighting effort to bear on the fire occurred because their officer in charge was unable to identify the officer in charge of the Manchester International Airport Fire Service. So... Like, oh he wasn't God. able to coordinate with the airport's chief, fire chief, basically. And so they didn't really know what to do when they initially got there. This is a much more streamlined process now across the globe. Yep. We'll talk about that in re- the recommendations, too. They found that the delay in the replenishment of water due to both the unavailability of water from the hydrant and the delay in escorting the Greater Manchester Council fire vehicles from the rendezvous point occurred at a time when attempts to fight the internal fire by means of hand lines had been curtailed by lack of water. Although it is considered unlikely, the possibility that the lack of water at the critical time led to loss of life cannot be discounted. So they can't really say one way or the other if that impacted how many people died? And primarily I understand why, because that smoke started overcoming people probably before the airplane even came to a stop. Yeah. And once they did come to a stop, it was seconds. Seconds. We talked about it. It was 20 seconds to the time that the airplane got penetrated by fire. It was only a minute before the passenger cabin was penetrated by fire, and then from there, I mean, it was, they didn't have any time. The fire nope. vehicles barely got there in that time. All the while they're inhibiting, they're inhaling acid. Yeah, so by the time they started firefighting inside anyways, it was already probably way too late. Although, it's, it's a problem. You should be able to refill the trucks at a hydrant. Yes, yeah. On Absolutely. airport grounds. Which, speaking of, they found that entry into the cabin to tackle the fire did not take place until some seven minutes after the aircraft stopped, by which time a severe fire was established in the cabin, which could not be tackled effectively using handheld branch lines. It should not have taken that long. It should not have taken seven minutes to get in there. It shouldn't have taken seven minutes for people to get out of there, let alone people to get in. They found that recent tests have demonstrated that water mist spray systems built into the fuselage, supplied either with onboard water or water from a firefighting vehicle, have great potential in limiting it slash extinguishing cabin fires. So, so like, like a, a sprinkler yeah. system? They're talking about, yeah, implementing like a sprinkler system into an airplane. Now, I will that? note that that has not been done. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> that's, yeah, I don't see any f- sprinklers and in the, the ceiling. <laughs> some of the reason why I bring this up is because they seem fixated on this because it comes up like three more times, both in the findings and the recommendations. It's kind of annoying because this wasn't something that the manufacturers had any interest in doing because it's a lot of weight. And yeah, water is heavy. It is heavy. And there's no practical way to involve this into the fuselage. I understand the interest in it. Absolutely. But there's other means. I mean, just simple fire extinguishers. Generally, pretty good idea. And those are dispersed throughout the cabin anyway. Also, just don't make the cabin light on fire so easily. Just a thought. Well, even if you like were going to implement that, it would be a better idea to have somewhere like outside the airplane to hook up a hose to rather than carrying extra water on board. Right. So if you're going to do a sprinkler system like that, find a way that y- they can hook up 
a truck's hose into the fuselage so it fuels that system instead of having the aircraft carry all that extra weight. Right. But they we they haven't done it because we have fire extinguishers now. So. Right. And you can also actually get off the plane in 90 seconds now. Yes. yes. Now here's an interesting one. They found that there has been an imbalance of effort between the amount of research being undertaken into the fire hardening of interior materials and that directed towards the fire hardening of the hull itself. So they were putting more stock in one over the other. Yeah, they were trying... Keeping they the were, hull from catching on fire instead of the inside. They were expecting the hull to keep the fire out. It didn't. It didn't. Spoiler alert. And also when it comes to like electrical fires, I'm like, mm-hmm, Swiss Air, sometimes the fires start inside. And what do you do then? It's already right. inside. And it turns out Swiss Air had a lot of the same problems where materials light on fire. So big problems. And people died. And people died. They found that the primary reason for the majority of the fatalities was rapid incapacitation due to inhalation of the toxic smoke atmosphere, the effects of which were made more critical by evacuation delays. Of the 54 fatalities on board, 48 had absorbed levels of carbon monoxide and or hydrogen cyanide in excess of that required to induce incapacitation. They died. They died from smoke inhalation. They found that the narrow gap of 10 and a half inches available between row 9 and 10 seats impeded passengers' access to the right overwing exit. The pressure of passengers on the 10F seat back caused failure of the seat back hinge, bulk allowing the backrest to fold forwards, creating a further obstacle to egress. So now you will note on planes that exit rows are much wider? Huge. Yes, for a reason. And also the seat backs have new standards because they don't want them to break. Yeah, they won't just fold over. Because you're talking about ten and a half inches and that seat back then fell forward into that ten and a half inches. That was bad. Also, please don't climb over seats. Please don't. Though I will say, this this is not by any means an encouragement, but it was mostly people who climbed over seats that lived. Yeah. Well, because people were, like, bomb rushing stuff. Actually, a lot of them testified that the reason they were climbing over seats were there, so, there were so many bodies in the aisle, which is awful. Yes. Along these same lines, another very important thing, and this is another point on the same finding, twin bulkheads in the forward cabin restricted evacuation flow to the forward exits after both were open, as in the two bulkheads around the front doors were so close together yep. that people also stacked up there. This It was poorly designed for a mob. Yes, for all the people that were on the plane in a situation I, like this where they had today, half of the Even today, I still think it's narrow. Like, just thinking of going through that space? Absolutely not. But they've determined that it's enough. It, yeah, especially if you file out in a calm, orderly fashion. Right. They found that the current regulatory certification requirements for aircraft cabin materials are inadequate in their omission of any restriction on smoke and toxic irritant, toxic irritant gas emissions, whilst unable to give assurance that such materials shall not undergo thermal degradation or combustion when subject to large fire, fuel-fed fires. So... Materials just weren't certified properly for fire. Yeah. On the inside of the cabins. They were toxic when combusted and had no fire retardant qualities. Now to bring up the thing. Yes. The thing I did not talk about. And I think this is, yeah, this is the last finding I have. They found that a comprehensive test program has shown that lightweight, easily donned smoke hoods have the performance to protect evacuees, keeping them conscious and mobile in typical aircraft fire environments and in addition can offer significant protection against in-flight fires. And while that's true... It's a contentious subject. Yes. That's why they haven't been implemented, even now. Because 
Okay, so just to put in perspective, when we say smoke hood, think of a hazmat suit, the hood that they put on, yeah, that. that. So, the one that severely restricts your vision, Yep. but allows you to breathe. And it's another thing to have to put on that you can struggle with to put on. The things that we have already are a pain in the butt enough, refer to US Flight 1549, but adding this additional thing that inhibits your vision... It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, especially when you should be out of the cabin in 90 seconds. And donning on this additional piece of equipment can elongate that time for evacuation. That's probably the biggest reason why it hasn't been implemented. And here's the thing. Anytime anything is going to take longer than a few seconds when somebody's adrenaline is rushing or when they're trying to do something really important, they're probably not going to do it. Refer to flight 1549. And there's this thing, like, for example, at my work, they try to implement this new process for part of what I do, but the process involved five extra steps on top of what the technicians are used to. And that was originally three steps. Five extra steps turns that into eight steps. And they don't do it. That's exactly right. So now they're, they're having so to try... To the three and I, I told them, if you're going to implement a new process, it needs to add one. No more than one step. Four steps is the maximum I would ever want the technicians to do, because beyond that... If they struggle with any one of those steps, they will stop the process and they won't follow through. So it's the same thing. It's like if you add that one whole extra piece to this, it is less likely to be used, less likely to be possible, and it's just going to be basically useless. And they ran this entire test. They burned, I think it was a quarter ton of material trying to test this thing. Yep. Which, for the record, they had smoke hoods on board for the crew. Right. None of them were used. Nope. So they're obviously super effective. So there's a point. That's it for the finding. The cause of the accident was an uncontained failure of the left engine initiated by a failure of the number 9 combustor can, which had been the subject of a repair. A section of the combustor can, which was ejected forcibly from the engine, struck and fractured an underwing fuel tank access panel. The fire which resulted developed catastrophically, primarily because of adverse orientation of the parked aircraft relative to the wind, even though the wind was light. Major contributory factors were the vulnerability of the wing tank access panels to impact, a lack of any effective provision for fighting major fires inside the aircraft cabin, the vulnerability of the aircraft hull to external fire, and the extremely toxic nature of the emissions from the burning interior materials. The major cause of the fatalities was rapid incapacitation due to the inhalation of the dense, toxic, irritant smoke atmosphere within the cabin, aggravated by evacuation delays caused by a forward right door malfunction and restricted access to the exits. All of that to sum up basically what we said. Okay, now for some safety recommendations. There were 31 of these, and we're not doing all 31 of these either. No, but a lot of these are important. They are really important, and actually that's because this probably had more impact on aviation than 99% of the accidents we talk about. Eh, then a lot. It did. Then a majority. The safety factors in this. I mean, the fact that an on-ground fire killed so many people is awful. It really shouldn't have. It's just mind-blowing. There's just, even in 1985, this just shouldn't have been a thing. I don't know if I've already said this, but again, when I first read the Wikipedia page, I was like, oh, this isn't, like, the hugest accident we've ever covered. And then I actually read it, I'm like, oh, crap. Yeah, and there's so many factors in this, there's so many things that went wrong, that it just kind of proved this overall carelessness, but also maybe, I don't know what the right word is for this, but like... Negligence? No, it's not even negligence. It's more like we have this grand idea about what aviation is, and it's like, oh, you can fly anywhere. But then we kind of push to the side all of the other things with it. It's kind of like, yeah, we can build you an airplane that holds this amount of people. 
But it's neglecting safety factors. Well, we're not going to certify all the rest of this stuff properly or take any time to do it because it's just, meh, meh, you need the airplane. It's not entirely negligence. It's more like a, um, I don't know what you call it. It's it's kind of like they didn't need to test it, so why would they? It's irresponsible. Yeah. It's And we've talked about it before. If they didn't have to do it and it's never happened before, why would they do it? I think it's like a grandeur factor. Like, you're a very large manufacturer and you're a very large airline and you haul a very high amount of people. And that's fantastic. Let's all make money together. The problem, the big problem we've run into time and time again around this time and also, you know, up through the 90s is if if you didn't need to certify it and you didn't certify it correctly, it's fine because nothing's happened before. But it's going to happen when it does point. happen. Yep. You're screwed. And then you get in trouble because you're like, well, why didn't you do that? Like, why is everything made of stuff that makes acid when it burns? Like, why? who who made that decision? And then they go, um... Well, and it all, we just didn't feel the need. It brings yeah. us back to the idea that everything that is on an aircraft or is in any process with an aircraft exists because someone died from the alternative. Yep. Yes. Yep. And this is an enormous example of that. All right. They recommended the procedures should be developed to enable the crew to position an aircraft when a ground fire emergency exists with the fire downwind of the fuselage. Visual indicators of local wind direction located within the maneuver areas would be valuable aids to the implementation of such a procedure. And to some extent, this exists because there are wind socks throughout most airports. I also just feel like, though, this isn't a huge priority. Not enormous, although it did contribute a very large amount to this fire. But Well, yes, but I don't feel like there's a whole lot. They recommend that research should be undertaken into the methods of providing the flight deck crew with an external view of the aircraft, enabling them to assess the nature and extent of external damage and fires. This is still not entirely implemented on a lot of wide bodies. They have cameras, but that's not really the purpose. No, but I mean, it's an effect. Yeah, it's a lot more feasible these days because cameras have gotten so small and easy to implement. They weigh literally nothing at this point. Well, in the system to control them, it weighs nothing. Yeah, exactly. So at this point, it's becoming a lot more feasible, a lot more realistic. And but I think that's definitely in the 2010s, 2020s. Yeah, not external cameras we'll talk about because it's still a contentious point to put them in the cockpit. 1980s, but yeah, it's not a thing that was feasible in the 80s no, at all. No, With now you're talking giant about video cameras right. that weighed like 50 pounds. Right. I mean, think about everything that's packed into your phone and then there's still a camera, a processor and a memory device in there. Everything in there for that little camera, memory and processor is everything you need on a plane and it probably weighs all of maybe half an ounce so it's along those lines it's like it doesn't take anything these days and external cameras yes could be a value and i think in a lot of wide bodies they've definitely done this so it seems feasible on narrow bodies they recommend that consideration should be given to the requirement to fit an evacuation alarm permitting flight deck crew to instruct cabin crew to initiate an evacuation immediately or if the aircraft is still moving to prime for an evacuation immediately when the aircraft is brought to a halt the whole point is here is that they should have like some evacuation button basically some quick button that triggers an alarm in the cabin that prepares or initiates an evacuation and to some extent this sort of exists now but it, it's not necessarily the right thing to do either but it, it kind of makes sense because you get to that point in the checklist and it can be you know not very many items in and all you have to do is push a button and then continue your checklist. Well, and then, because that addresses the issue of the way it currently is, or was, yeah. was to use the PA system, which was faulty. Yep, the PA system didn't prove to work very well. Well, and there's been times where PA systems haven't worked at all. Yeah, right. if there's a break in the cabin, yeah. 
all the communication is severed. And there's still no perfect system for this, but on some airplanes, it is automatic. All right. They recommend that emergency equipment for use by cabin crews during an emergency evacuation should be stowed at the cabin crew stations. I waited till now to really talk more about this because obviously this has changed. And obviously they are stored near the cabin crew stations. Biggest factor that kept them from doing this before is because of that really narrow galley. The really narrow area that the cabin crew were in at the front of the airplane and at the rear. But point being is like they didn't have much space as it was already. So they didn't really have the space to implement any of that. Eventually what they did is basically eliminate a row of seats and push the bulkheads out. And that allowed them to actually fit in emergency equipment at the crew stations, as well as allow more space for passengers to evacuate. What a concept. Yeah, what a thought. They recommend that direct fusion weld repair of circumferential cracks in the JT-8D engine combustor cans should be deleted from all approved engine overhaul manuals unless the safe life of the repaired can has been demonstrated for the anticipated overhaul slash inspection period. Which ultimately, how? So why not just We really just shouldn't be welding stuff. Yeah. At all. Nope. Either replace it or do the other change. Which I'm is honestly the... really surprised that they didn't bring up the fact that welds are more brittle. Yeah, it's true. I mean, they had to go through so much other stuff. They were like, just don't do it. Yeah. If you yeah. have questions, let us know. Yeah. But like, just don't do it. So along those lines, they recommend that operators should seek the manufacturer's comments when making changes to approved technical manuals under the terms of approval granted by the CAA. So this is really talking about since the fact that their manual didn't match Pratt & Whitney's engine manual for repairing these cans, the fact that they were different and that wasn't ever really approved or... There was no oversight on it, basically. The whole thing about that is just making sure that there's actually communication on this and that it is an approved thing. Well, and then this kind of bring, sort of tangentially brings up the subject of doing repairs that aren't in the original manufacturer's manual. These are possible. I actually worked with a technician once who did composite repairs that were not outlined in the manual of the manufacturer. You have to go through so many special approvals to do that kind of stuff. Yes, you do. You have to meet with the FAA. Generally, yep. To do these kinds of repairs. Yeah. Technically speaking, the way that they were doing these repairs was not per the manual, so it should have been specifically approved. Right. It should have been a, but an by approved the method. CAA. I, the CAA would it in be this a case. CAA? Yeah, CAA. Civil Aviation Authority there. I was going to say the ICAO, but I'm like, that's no. an no. international <laughs> thing, nope. so... They recommend, and this is an important one, they recommend a, rev a review of the approval of the cabin configuration as existed on Golf Bravo Golf Juliet Lima should be conducted with particular reference to the following features of that configuration. The restrictive view of the passenger cabin afforded by the forward cabin crew when seated, as in they couldn't see anything. They couldn't see the cabin at all from where they were seated. The forward aisle restriction created by the floor-to-ceiling forward galleys. So this has changed. Which you actually yes. might notice if you are sitting on the... So let's picture a narrow body plane. You are sitting on the left side of the cabin. There is like a tinted window between you and those flight attendants. Yep. Generally, there's a tinted window or there's at least a sizable gap. They can see you. Yep. The point is here, they couldn't. Yep. Three, access to the overwing exit where the presence of row 10 seats appeared to conflict with the British civil airworthiness requirements. It is recommended that all row 10 seats be removed. Removing a whole row of seats so that there's actually space around the exit. So people can get out. Which yep. this this has been addressed by just increasing the pitch of the exit rows. Yep. So now there's, I mean, yes, you get a ton more leg room if you're sitting in the exit row. But also. But also. 
It's important. It's really nice. Uh, Brendan yep. and I, when we went to Seattle, Seattle, yeah, we accidentally got put in an exit row together. It's nice. And it's so nice. There's so much leg room. You don't I, need yeah. that much leg room, bro. You don't. So? <laughs> it's still nice anyways. Still I'll nice. give you that. It's kind of weird because you have to like shove your bags really far in front of you because yeah. the, the, it's a big enough for people to get through so right. that if you're like, even if I was sitting in the seat, they could get there. They could get through. If you were passed in front out. Of me. Yeah. Well, and along those lines, it would also have prevented the like the door from falling onto a passenger and things yeah, like that. Yeah, instead it would that, have fallen on the like floor. the exit window. They could have easily have they they needed to stand up these days to take it out and then throw it out onto the wing. To finish out that point, the approval of other configurations on Boeing 737 and other types should also be reviewed with the intention of addressing any similar problems. So just Overall, doing a an overhaul and a look-through of all aircraft and making sure that this isn't a common problem. Fix the exit rows. Yep. They recommend a requirement should be introduced for passenger public address systems that can continue to function largely independently of engine or airframe system conditions and provide a high-gain mode for use in emergency. So this has sort of come up in several other reports that we've talked about. Because you need it to have... You need it to be independently powered in case something goes wrong with the engine. So right. have it attached to a backup battery. Right. And along those lines, since one of the engines shut down, the volume got low. And so they're saying that it should also have its own high gain mode so that you can actually hear it. Yeah. Increase the volume. Right. They recommend a requirement should be introduced for an effective communication system for rescue and firefighting personnel as part of the licensing requirements for all major airports. That requirement should include provision for communication on the same system by the officer in charge of the units deployed by any local authority fire service having standing arrangements to attend such airports. So in other words, they should just have like a common communication system between the city and the airports for rescue and fire services for their basically fire chiefs, the people in charge, so that they can easily communicate with one another. And this makes a lot of sense to me. Another recommendation that I didn't really put in here is that they recommended that they should, that the like the person in charge, the fire chief, whomever, should have a very specific high reflective outfit so yeah. that they're easy to find. That makes sense. To make it quicker to coordinate. Do you know if that's the case? These days I would think there's a, yeah, a lot related to that it makes it really easy to find them but i don't know exactly what that requirement would look like you're not a firefighter i'm not oh turns out it turns out they recommend that a thorough review should be undertaken into techniques for for extinguishing fires inside the passenger cabins of public transport aircraft with a view to rectifying the current deficiencies in airfield firefighting capability when dealing with internal fires just basically having some sort of method of actually putting out fires inside of airplanes this has definitely been changed and there are actually like training airplanes at most major airports like they have like these mock fuselages that oh, they literally which, let on fire and they're forced to go in and try to extinguish internal and external which we've talked about before at our local airport they definitely have one and nick and i got to volunteer as a yeah crash victims and at the airport we're at they actually use an airplane fuselage yeah. like a real airplane fuselage and like it's, it's literally off to the side they had to spray yeah. paint it the color of the grass so that people didn't think it was just a downed airplane yeah <laughs> But that's what they use. But yeah. our plane spotting spot that we do at that airport, you can see it. It's literally right over the fence from where we are. Yeah. But at a lot of major airports like Chicago and Denver and all those, there's they have actually like these 
they're not actual airplane fuselages. They're Dang. just like welded metal. They're really ugly looking. They're almost mock DC-10 airplanes. They're just tiny little things, but they are used to specifically just light on fire whenever they want to do it. Okay, training. so I also find that a lot of these airports that have previously had incidents at uh, just leave these abandoned wreckage there. They should just use it. Like there's a 727 sitting at DIA. Just light it on fire. Yeah, but the optics of that don't look very good to passengers. Meh. It's <laughs> fine. DIA is big enough. Just put it somewhere out there. Somewhere. In the middle of nowhere. Anyways, they recommend that onboard water spray slash mist fire extinguishing systems having the capability of operating both from onboard water and from tender fed water should be developed get it. as a matter of urgency and introduced at the earliest opportunity Sprinkler in all commercial. systems that weren't yeah. implemented. Again, with the thing that just, that doesn't work. FLS systems, as I have learned, is they are called light, fire line safety. There you go. Something like that. Yeah, they, they bring this up another several times. <laughs> we get it. Yeah. It, it's not an effect. There it's are... a good idea. In theory. Yep. They recommend that the balance of effort in aircraft fire research should be restored by increased effort directed towards fire hardening of the hull, the limitation of fire transmission through the structure, and the prevention of structural collapse in the critical areas. Short-term measures should be devised for application to existing types, but in the long-term, fire criteria should form a part of international airworthiness requirements. Strengthening the hull, changing their requirements for fire resistance. They recommend that a requirement should be introduced to ensure the existing... In- External fuel tank access panels, which are vulnerable to impact from engine or wheel tire failures on aircraft in service, are at least as impact resistant as the surrounding structure. Needless yeah. to say, so the whole thing sure happened the because the access panel was access too thin. Access panel, yeah. Yeah. The potential risk of damage from debris impacts should be addressed in the future by appropriate design requirements covering debris ejection from engines and or impact strength requirements for the airframe. At this point, they pretty much just have to use the exact same thickness of metal on the rest of the airplane. And their inset panels at this point, because it used to be that they were they were actually like external. They were just thinner pieces of metal, and they would screw them on the outside. But now, actually, what they'll do is the the like say the wing metal will come to that access panel, and then it'll actually be inset. It'll flex up, and then the panel is then mounted up flush with the wing. See, I would think that you would just have a double door system. Sort of, but that's not quite as easy. Kind of like a double hull, because yeah. I don't... Does the fuel tank actually touch the airplane's skin, or is there a gap between them? Depends on the airplane. Because I would think if there's a gap between, just maintain that. And yes, this is true. But basically, they they made the access panels the same thickness as the rest of the airplane. Yeah, that works Which ultimately mostly fixed this problem. They recommend that aerosols with hydrocarbon propellants should be treated in the same way as other cylinders of flammable gas and their carriage on board aircraft controlled accordingly. In other words, don't. Yeah. Just don't bring them. That, don't that, do it. This happened, in case you didn't gather yep. that. Yep. If you were not aware, now you are aware. Yep. They recommend that requirements should be introduced to ensure that all portable oxygen bottles carried on board public transport aircraft are fitted with pressure release, relief valves and are stowed in thermally protected areas, preferably at low levels. So th- they really fix this by just not allowing them anymore. Yeah, that's that special tank. I remember my uncle had to get something super expensive. Yep. Yeah, that's a requirement these days and that's because those are ultimately easier and better to deal with than an actual oxygen tank which yeah, is just you're very not, dangerous because you're not storing oxygen yeah right it's not a pressurized tank it doesn't have anything like it that it can't explode right and those pressurized tanks are just ultimately very dangerous anyways i mean even with a pressure release valve that's just feeding the fire 
if you ask me, which is why they're saying that they should be at some protected, thermally protected area. But ultimately, where would that be? That's not possible on an airplane. They can't plan for that. They can't plan for 10 different people in 10 different locations on the airplane to have 10 different thermally protected areas for their oxygen tanks. It's just not possible. They recommend that the Civil Aviation Authority should urgently give consideration to the formulation of a requirement for the provision of smoke hoods slash masks to afford passengers an effective level of protection during fires which produce a toxic environment within the aircraft cabin. Again, not done. This has not happened. Will not. They recommend that the proposed requirements for cabin crew smoke hood protection to be extended to include training for crew donning and use during aircraft emergency evacuations associated with fire and or smoke threat during the evacuation. So this is really aimed at the crew, and this makes a little more sense than passengers, but still. It still hasn't been done. Yeah. They recommend that the applicable regulatory requirement for aircraft cabin material certification should be amended at the earliest opportunity to include strict limitations of smoke and toxic irritant gas gas emissions. Changing everything about the inside of the airplane. Making sure it doesn't emit horrible acidic gas when it's burnt. Obviously, this has happened, by the way. Yes. Now, your seat cushions are, like, have special fire retardants in them. Fun fact. Yes. And all of the panels and stuff do not contain PVC. And also, the acoustic insulation that they had throughout the entire airplane, which... Was that mylar, just like on Swiss Air 111? It was fiberglass, they said. It's fiberglass, but still, that was flammable. What? And inhaling fiberglass sucks. Super bad for you. If you survived, your lungs will be trash. So If they weren't already trash from the acid you already inhaled. So, fun fact, I took a composites class, if you didn't Mm -hmm. listen way earlier in the podcast. And my teacher for that class had actually inhaled so much fiberglass over the years that he's now allergic. That's nice. So whenever we were doing fiberglass layups or anything, he's like, yeah, you go do this with this guy who's worked on planes, which is the guy I mentioned earlier. I can't be here. (laughs) Yeah, that's why you're supposed to wear really special equipment when you handle fiberglass. fiberglass I've never done that. Yeah, it's not good for you because those are really tiny particles and they can really do some serious damage. It's shards of glass. Yeah, exactly. Very, very tiny, sharp shards of glass. Fiberglass. Yep. Again. They recommend a research program should be undertaken to establish the effect of water mist spray extinguishing systems on the toxic irritant constitute. Okay, whatever. We're just going to move on. Because this is annoying. We get it. It's not implemented, but we get it. Yeah. Okay, now we come to probably the most important of them all. They recommend that the existing regulatory requirements governing the evacuation certification of public transport aircraft should be reviewed and amended to include. One, a demonstration of an acceptable evacuation time when the cabin is evacuated using half- the total number of exits disposed towards one end of the cabin, that end being chosen, which represents the greatest restriction to passenger egress. Two, simulation of a defined dense smoke atmosphere within the cabin existing from the initiation of the evacuation until its completion. I imagine this happens with fog machines. Yeah, they, yes, I have actually not gotten to experience that, but I've gotten to see where they do it. It's really cool. So it's fog machines? Basically, yeah. Cool. Three, all other subtesting associated with the cabin evacuation, including passenger aisle flow, the identification of exits and aperture egress rates, upon which design and configuration certification decisions are based, be conducted in the same simulated smoke atmosphere. All of this has absolutely been implemented, and they definitely use the half-exits rule, because that's what they had on this flight, for one, and two, that's just an important thing to do anyways, is that if you can get everybody out in what they decided 90 seconds 
as the standard. If you can get everybody out of an airplane in an emergency situation in 90 seconds using only half of the exits, then that airplane is going to be ridiculously safe if you can use more than that. Yep. And also, having an actual plan for evacuation. Yes. Instead of being like, uh, sure. (laughs) There's an evacuation. What? (laughs) Yeah. Give it. There should be a reason and a timing and everything behind having evacuation certification. Yep. Okay. So I want to bring this up real quick because this was brought up in the air disasters episode. One of the changes that was made was it was found that having an assertive crew telling passengers what to do facilitates the evacuation. You don't want passengers to be making their own decisions because that leads to hesitation, like at the door. Right. So by having an assertive crew that says, hey, go this way, you're telling them what to do. They don't have to think twice about it. Just follow them. When there's a lot of training now into standardizing evacuation procedures that it's just memory for most flight attendants. And they'll actually all repeat their script out loud. And a lot of the times, like when it comes to, for example, bracing, like they'll say like, head down, stay down. And they'll all say it in sync. And it's the same thing with like evacuate. They'll say like, evacuate. And they'll usually tell you where. And this point, well, a lot of reason why this came up is because the two most senior cabin crew members were at the forward part of the airplane, and they did an effect evacuation, and they got out. The other two didn't. The other two were pretty new in experience, although they were fully trained, but they were pretty new in experience, and so they weren't very assertive, and they were at the rear of the airplane. Granted, they were also overcome with smoke very quickly, so they really couldn't do much. They said that from what they could ascertain from what was left, they had done their job as trained and appropriately, but still, they weren't trained to be assertive. Three more here. They recommend that the design strength of the brake-forward bulks fitted to the seats adjacent to overwing exits should be increased to prevent failure due to passenger pressure loads on the backs of seats. That's saying, like, the seats immediately around the exit area should have much stronger seat backs so that they don't just break. Break? Anymore, the standards for all seats is much higher on airplanes. They recommend that research should be undertaken to assess the viability of audio attraction and other techniques designed to attract passengers toward viable exits when speech and vision is impaired in smoke and toxic irritant gases. Hence, floor lighting. So it's not audio. I will say that. Yeah. But we talked about this after we covered Air Canada Flight 797. There is track lighting on the floor. That will lead you to the exit. Yep. Follow that. Get low to the ground because the smoke will rise. (laughs) Smoke rises. Welcome back to elementary school. And army crawl along the ground if you have to, but get to an exit using those lights. Right. They will lead you to safety. And I will say that the audio thing would be an interesting implementation, but it would be a little bit hard because of all the other noises and things going on. Oh yeah, absolutely. It And coming from my experience with loud noises, it's overwhelming and can send you into more of a panic. Yes. So it's not necessarily the right thing to do, although the concept is interesting because... I can understand, like, you're in smoke, maybe you can't see anything at all, and that might give you the chance to find that exit. Yeah. They recommend that research should be undertaken into the effects of cabin airflow on smoke-slash-gas venting and flashover delays-slash-suppression with a view towards the possible benefits of changing current cabin air conditioning design and or associated procedures. So figuring out how flashover occurs as well as, like, smoke flowing through cabins, how to mitigate this problem... So that, and biggest thing was just, first of all, changing materials so that they aren't toxic, so that even if you do get smoke, you aren't necessarily going to die immediately from it. Yeah, but also flashover wasn't a huge factor in this event. 
but they wanted to still highlight that as a possible issue since it has happened. And they wanted to make sure that there was some sort of requirement and standard for understanding flow. Like where yeah, smoke venting. where smoke flows, venting, things like that. And so uh, another recommendation that I didn't really bring up was structuring the hole so that it doesn't collapse under fire. But that has really, that's a, such a touchy point because airplanes still collapse under flames. But it usually takes longer than it did on this airplane. Well, we, and we've talked about planes usually break up in three parts. Yeah. They're designed to. That's just because that's the way they're made. Right. And there's not really a way to make an entire airplane without breaking it apart somehow and yeah. putting it together. So until we get like giant 3D printers to print composite to make giant planes Which that don't do. need to be do, do like to have all at once instead of having to deconstruct and reconstruct. Like there's just no way to get it to not. Doing it all at once is probably going collapse. to doing it all at once is probably going to be impossible. But they basically already have three D printers for the composites that make like the seven eight seven and the A three fifty. If you ever it's seen, pretty cool. if you ever seen how it's done, it's super cool. Anyways, that's that that super long thing, and this changed so many things in in aviation, especially like evacuation materials and standards for safety and cabin crew and firefighting, and it changed so many safety factors in aviation that I can't highlight this one enough about how many things really changed and needed to change. This was important. Absolutely. That was British Air Tours Flight 28. Mike. Mike. Thank you for joining us, everyone. Uh, Thanks for sticking through it if you made it this far. Helen, why? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, okay, so let, let me put you through our mind space here. So this week was supposed to be Challenger. Then we had to move everything around. Thank you, Dr. Chris Yakaki. So <laughs> we were like, we'll just do this one. This doesn't seem that bad. It was a rough one. Thanks. Yeah. Really important, though. Important. Absolutely. But like, it's like a two hour long episode. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so I thank mean, you. thank you for that. But also, this is your fault. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Again, check out, since you've, it's been a while since you've heard this, check out the Patreon, uh, which you can either look us up on Patreon, or you can go to our Patreon tab on the website. Check out the merch. Which is also on the website. Send us listener stories. This is going to come out the last week of September. So for October, we haven't gotten anything yet as of when we're recording. So please submit your suggestions. And we'll, yeah. we'll figure it out. We'll let you know. Or just send us a story if you have a story you want to share. Just send it. We'll, we like stories. Yeah. We enjoy them greatly. Spooky stories will still be accepted, even though that was the theme last year. I love spooky stories. Me too. Oh, me too. Yeah. I love time. spooky stories. We're huge paranormal nerds. Yes. So. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you have any questions you want to ask us, there's also a thing on the website for listener questions. We don't get very many of them, which is fine, and we've mostly got them for episodes, which is also fine, but if you want to know more about us, just us, feel free to go ahead and ask on or there. Or themes we haven't touched on. Yeah. Also, don't forget to rate us, leave a review, all that jazz. Help other people find us. Yes, because we're cool. We, we would very much like that. Uh, again, thanks for listening, and we hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we will catch you all next week. Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. 
This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.